Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz, Whirlwind Trip Montreal. It is 11.30 a.m. in the morning on Saturday here at the Just for Laughs Festival, and it's hard to believe that I am up and alive. And my guest today, J.B. Smoove and his manager, Rick Dorfman, are here (laughs) in this room at the Hyatt Hotel. Let me tell you something. You know that kind of hotel that you just walk into and the room smells like something happened here that was cleaned up? Maybe there was a murder. They did some kind of industrial cleaning. You open the door and it smells like cover up of death i don't know what it is it's just it smells like there was some kind of caution tape in here at some point in time but that's okay as jb smooth walks in this room he realizes his life as a comedian is better than my life which is really obvious when you look at this room here it's pretty sad but it's okay all you need is a room and a dollar and a dream, and we are here. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. It means a lot. Rick Dorfman here, JB's manager. You know, it means a lot to me more than anything else in the world. Everybody out there, you, you send all these letters and emails and faxes and tweets and Facebook messages. And that means so much when I get all these notes, let you know you're on the right track. And I'm not saying that that isn't vitally important to me because it is. It's so incredible that you guys are so supportive. 
but I rarely get to mix with so many people from the industry as I do here at the Montreal Just for Last Festival. And one of the things that happened to me the other night, I was coming in and a lot of people were stopping me. And some that I didn't know, some that I knew, old faces, friendly faces, saying that they listen and that they like it and that they feel like they get a lot out of it. And that means a lot to me because that's the only reason that I do it. Because clearly, based on this Hyatt hotel room, Shit is not going well, but that's okay. And Rick Dorfman, JB's manager, he came right up to me. It was so wonderful. He hugged me. He said, I love your podcast. And he, he reached into his pocket and he opened up his wallet and he pulled out a $20 bill and he handed it to me and he said, Barry, I want to give you this $20 bill. I'm like, why, why do you want to give me this $20 bill? Because of the podcast, Barry. I want to give you this $20 bill. I'm like, really? That's so nice of you. Yes, Barry. And I start holding the 20. You know, I feel like I'm going to take this 20 from him, teach this guy a lesson if I could do anything. And he says, no, I'm not letting go of this. I'm giving you the 20. If you could just edit your intros, please. They are too long. I can't finish these things. Edit the fucking intros and I will give you this $20. And I was holding on tight like the Jew I am. But I said, you know what? I'm going to let go of this 20 because that's all I have is these intros. After that, it's all about everybody else. So when I look at my guest, J.B. Smooth, you know, I always tell stories when I look at somebody and I never know what I'm going to say. And I'm going to say something that's going to be very honest and open. From the moment I met J.B. Smooth, I love J.B. Smooth. There's something about this guy that was just so unique and authentic and special. And he was always so nice. I never, ever saw J.B. Smoove lose his temper. I never, ever saw him be mean to another comic. I never saw him in the back of the Boston Comedy Club getting into a fight with another comedian because he stole their joke. I never saw J.B. Smoot ever do anything that wasn't positive and first class. And I always loved that about him. And I always really loved his talent. And as a manager, when you love somebody's talent, you want to work with them. But Every time he'd come to the club, he always was one of the first guys who had a manager, and his manager was one of the most extraordinarily beautiful women you would ever meet in your entire life, and she would come every time, and it was like, oh, God, I guess I, I'm never going to work with J.B. Smoove because how is he going to ever leave that? But if I had a manager like that, I'd never leave the house. I would just be calling up people to come over. I didn't know what she did as a manager. I didn't know if she was effective. She wasn't effective. I didn't care. I was never going to talk to J.B. in regards to that. But I tried doing little things like colleges and things like that. And to show you how relationships work, uh, Rick Dorfman at the time was working in my office and he was doing a lot of great things in management back then. He had a lot of great visions. And it comes full circle because he is the one who's representing JB now. And I'm in a Hyatt hotel room that smells like death. But what I wanted to say to everybody was this. Sometimes you talk to people and you tell them your opinions. I always say I only get paid for one thing, my opinion. That doesn't mean my opinion is always right. That doesn't mean I always have the wherewithal to say the right things. And one of the things about JB that was evident early on is he had, I don't know if it was a speech impediment, but it was something where 
he spoke in a way that it wasn't always clear. And so I'd be watching his set, and sometimes there were certain parts of his set that I didn't really understand. But I loved his comedy. And I reenacted one of his bits the other day, and I'm not going to do it here, something from 25 years ago that I still remember. And I used to go up to him and I used to say, JB, I think that if you ever get a little extra money, you should do something, maybe go to a speech coach, do something like that to help get things a little bit different, a little bit clearer in your character and what you do. And honestly, I don't believe that he ever took that advice. And thank God he never took that advice because he continued and he understood in his mind that this is what makes him an original. His voice is what makes him an original. If you know anything about stand-up comedy, stand-up comedy is like that game show, Name That Tune. If you are an extraordinary stand-up comic, your voice is the thing that you have that separates you from everybody else along with your content. So if you're a guy who just has a normal voice, who is just a regular voice, or you don't have the cadence or different things, chances are you're going to have less of a chance to make it. So I could play J.B. Smooth's voice, and literally in three seconds, you would know it's J.B. Smooth. I could play Chris Rock, and in three seconds, you would know it was Chris Rock. Chappelle, three seconds. And he remained using this persona that was sort of like a, I don't know, it was like an inflated version of himself, an exaggerated version of himself. And because he stayed true to who he was and what he believed in, and he didn't care whether he was changing things a little bit to be part of the norm or to be a little bit easier castable in his own mind, a more easily castable in his own mind, what he did was he stayed true to himself and he said, hey, fuck it. I'm going to audition the way I am. I'm going to go out in the world the way I am. And I'm going to make a huge explosion on the scene the way I am, not the way somebody wants me to be or the way society wants me to be. And because of that and staying true to himself, he came full circle and starting with Def Jam, it's just a perpetual snowball going down a mountain faster and faster and faster, gaining steam. And this guy works nonstop. He's done everything you can imagine in this business from animation to shows like Curb Your Enthusiasm, which are amazing, to Saturday Night Live, to Last Comic Standing. He's hosted, he's acted, he's done films, voiceovers. Christ, he even voiced a Call of Duty. So if there's anything to garner from this, yes, there's going to be people in your life who tell you advice and give you advice. That doesn't mean that some of the advice you get or all of the advice isn't going to be wonderful advice. But if after the advice you get, like all the advice from every manager, agent, and lawyer that told me not to do this podcast, sometimes you have to sit back, really reflect, and think about what you are as an artist and what you want to be as an artist and how you want to move forward and what representation of yourself you want to show the world. And in the case of J.B. Smooth, he decided, hey, you know, thank you, Barry, but I'm going to do it this way. And boy, oh boy, did it work. And I am so proud of him, and I'm so honored uh, to be in his presence. So I think if there's anything to learn from today, listen, 
if you're a manager out there, don't be afraid to shit on other managers and make jokes and be happy and have fun with whatever it is. But don't be afraid also to take somebody aside and tell them that they're doing great work in what they're doing because you know you're doing great work too. And instead of wondering and scheming, okay, how am I going to be more of a person that's not nice to everybody and not nice to people in my profession? And if it comes to being an artist like J.B. Smoove and you get advice, listen, I'm not saying don't take it, but really sit back in the fetal position in your house and think about it. Think about who you are as an artist, what's going to get you there. And if you believe what you're doing is going to get you there and somebody tells you it isn't, then just fight forward as hard as you can with your talent and your personality and your kindness and your generosity, and you'll have the kind of career that J.B. Smoove has. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You're fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary, and I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest, be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary, I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. All of you who are still awake after that gut-wrenching cold open, somebody give Rick Dorfman some kind of a towel. Wipe him off. The last podcast I did, the manager actually lied down and fell asleep in the room, which was very, very important. Gave me a lot of confidence. Anyway, I'm going to introduce you. It's going to be long. Please, hopefully you can handle it, and then we'll get into it. 
J.B. Smoo was born in Plymouth, North Carolina and raised in the projects of Mount Vernon, New York. Smooth is a gifted writer, comedian, and actor who continues to entertain audiences all over the world with his unique brand of comedic funk. His breakout role on Curb Your Enthusiasm as Leon Black has firmly planted him as one of the best comedic actors today. Agreed. After launching his career on Russell Simmons' Def Jam with a monster set, he began really settling in in the late 90s when he moved to Los Angeles and landed a recurring role on MTV's The Lyricist Lounge, which was a sketch show combining music and rap, as well as featured guest spots on The Chris Rock Show and Premium Blend. This led to his first big feature film where he narrated and starred in the cult classic Pootie Tang starring Lance Crowther in the lead role. Reunited with Rock Smooth subsequently followed this up with a co-starring role opposite Adam Sandler in Mr. Deeds. After a season as a cast member on the sketch comedy program Cedric the Entertainer Presents, Smooth moved back to New York where he landed a writing gig on NBC's Saturday Night Live, where he was called the King of Pitches. He later was a recipient of the 2007 Writers Guild Award for Best Comedy Variety Series for his work on the show. In the stand-up and acting world, Smoove has been featured on Tough Crowd, Jamie Foxx Presents, Lapapalooza, Saturday Night Live, Sketches, Recurring Spots on Late Night with Conan O'Brien, Everybody Hates Chris, Still Death, Bent, The Real Husbands of Hollywood, I love that show, and The Millers. He was seen as a host of NBC's Last Comic Standing as well, and in the Comedy Central series, Russell Simmons Presents, The Ruckus. Full circle, ladies and gentlemen, Relationships. He shot his own one-hour stand-up special, How I Do's It, for the cable channel. Smooth's show, Four Courses, with J.B. Smooth is in its fourth season on the MSG Network. On the big screen, he appeared in Date Night with Steve Carell and Tina Fey, and the Farrelly Brothers-directed comedy Hall Pass, as well as The Sitter with Jonah Hill, We Bought a Zoo, featuring Matt Damon, and The Dictator opposite Sasha Baron Cohen as well as Chris Rock's movie, which I love, Top 5, and the upcoming Barbershop 3 and Myers Christmas. Smooth's unique comedic voice has also been put to good use in animation, where he did voiceovers for roles in both Ice Age 4 and The Smurfs 2 on the big screen, and in TV shows such as American Dad, which is my kid's favorite show in the world, Teenage Ninja Turtles. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a guy who... I love, everybody loves, and you're going to love. Please welcome J.B. Smoove. What up, Barry? What's going on, man? Are you still alive? I'm still alive, brother. And you know what? Rick, off of 20, I will give you a crisp $100 bill. <laughs> shorten that. And also another 100 to change this room. <laughs> it's great to be here, man. You know, and um, you are absolutely right. You know, sitting here as your guest um, and hearing my own, I've n- I never pat myself on the back or read my own hype or read my own bio. Someone else writes that for me. I don't read it. I don't, you know, I, I recognize the journey, but also I, I recognize that, you know, these, these are all mostly calculated and mostly uh, just steps, man. You know, I'm I'm one of those guys. You know, uh, I'm I'm cool with being. Uh, you know, there's a half glass, a half full glass, and there's a. You know, I'm cool being uh, 
at that level where I can do a bunch of different things and throw a bunch of different things against the wall and enjoy it, man. Enjoy the uh, the moments that I can have with each project. You know, and I've been very lucky, you know, hearing or hear, just hearing that I've been very lucky because, you know, I got a chance to uh, uh, do what I do. And that's the one thing you want as an actor, as a comedian is, is when they call you to do something, they like what you've done. So when you get there, you're not confused. They bring you there for a reason. And uh, I've been blessed to get with some great producers, great directors. And, um, you know, and, and, and they bring me in and do exactly what they like about me, which is a blessing for any comedian, any actor to, to when they call you, you know why they called you. You're not getting there like, okay, you want me to do something totally different from what I do or you want me to do what I do, you know? And, and it's best to get that call that they want you to do what the hell you do. And um, then, then, then you know you can put 200% into it because you know exactly what they want. And I, over, I give them too much. I give them too much. So, you know, I always go by this notion of you give them too much, it's, it's easy to pull back. When they say pull back a little bit, I know how to pull back. But if I come in low and they tell me to turn it up, I don't know how high to turn it up. And a lot of times you turn it up too high. Now they're like, damn, what the hell is you doing? You know, now you're going too high. You know, now you got to come back down again. So it's better to be high and turn it back a little bit than to be low and turn it up too damn high and look like a goddamn idiot on the set. But um, this, awesome. this is all this is all true, man. This is all this is all great, great, great stuff to uh, to you know reprocess and give to someone else. You know that's always been my thing, man. I'm the guy that ate lunch with the with the interns when I'm on a, on a set. I'm the guy that says hello, good morning to everyone. You know, I'm the dude that pats an intern on the back. You know who those interns are now. I ate lunch with an intern on Pootie Tang. That dude works in some studio now. It's crazy. You know what I mean? And he, I saw him one day. He, he said, you know what, JB? Thank you. When I was an intern on Pootie Tang or whatever it was, man, you patted me on the back. Every morning you said hello to me. Every, you know, and I appreciate that, man. One time you even sat down and ate lunch with me. I said, man, what? We, we, we're all working together. It's not like I'm putting myself above anyone else, man. You know? That's so important. You know, oftentimes you do a lot of personal <laughs> appearance stuff with your artist and you'll maybe appear at some city at some theater or some arena or something like that. And the staff there will tell you inevitably about the people who were the nicest people in the world that hung out with everybody backstage and they were huge stars. And then they tell you about the artist that do something called curtaining off in the theater and arena world. That's when if you've ever been to an ex exhibition hall and you see all those poles with those curtains across them and they go in eight feet by 10 feet sections, well, they put those all up against the wall with like a three feet walkway all the way from the arena all the way around or a theater. The reason why they do that, so the artist never has to see anybody, never has to talk to anybody. And... I don't ever want anybody I work with to be like that. And certainly you never were. And you will probably end up doing a movie at that movie studio or wherever that guy <laughs> is because of that relationship. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, it's, it's always been about building relationships, man. I like to plant seeds, man. You know, I plant, I plant a lot of seeds, believe me, man. Just even a, a three-minute conversation with someone, man, is worth you know, it's worth a, a phone call. It could be five years later. It could be a year later. It could be 10 years later. You'd be surprised, man, uh, how how things come full circle. And, and you, you know, I'm like I'm like that notion of, you know, you, you go into the forest, 
you know, sometimes if you don't know your way around, you'll drop popcorn on the ground as you go through the forest. You know, you can drop that popcorn to find your way out of the forest, or you can drop that popcorn at certain intervals in your, in your life so you can come back and revisit those those points in your life where you met someone, you drop popcorn right there, you met another person, drop popcorn right there, or a seed or whatever it is. But those are all those are all just building blocks, man, to what we do. You know, and, and once I and once I've learned that, you know, um uh, this comedy thing that we do is not it's not just a um um it, it's a gift, man. To me it's a gift. And, and it's something that can be given away over and over again and 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 um and, and you have to be in it for the right reason. You know, I remember I met a guy years ago, he was like, Man, we did a comedy club and we were, we were just doing a show somewhere out of town and the guy told me, I'm just in this I'm just in this for the ass and I was like, Damn I'm like, Wow, man, you know, that just shows you that, you know, you you know, you you have to understand why you're in this, you know, and I, I truly enjoy giving uh joy to people. I, I truly truly enjoy, you know, um Telling my story, man, because it really is uh, a cool story. I'm just a country boy from North Carolina, man. You know, you know, I, I survived a lot, I built a lot, you know, and I respect what I do. I respect um, everyone's craft. I respect everyone's journey. You know, I'm very, very conscious of what I want to do. So when you read when you read that bio, you gotta understand also that, you know, I pick and choose exactly who I want. In my life, I pick and choose exactly what projects I want to do. I've turned down so many things. You know why? Because I turn down things, and, and I don't take everything because, you know, everything is not built for you. Some things just have to be given to somebody else. You know, if you can't get in there and give 200%, you know, why, why even take it? If you can't, uh, if you feel like it's not you, why take it? Why waste your time? Why waste someone else's journey? You know, that's not just one journey, not, not just mine. There's a director there who's always wanted to, to direct. There's a producer there who always wanted to produce. There's another actor there who always wanted to do that role. Why, 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 you know, I'm not greedy. You know, I, I'm very cautious, man. And that's, that, that goes also with who I choose to rep me. You know, I, believe me, I've I fired five agents. You know why? Because if you don't work as hard as I work, or you don't hustle like I hustle, and you don't have, and I don't feel like you have my best interest, or I don't feel like uh, I'm moving the way I want to move, or you don't match me, you don't match my my movement, my vision, you got to go. That's just how it is, and I'm not. A, I'm never, never afraid to pull the trigger. You know why? Because I know what the fuck I do. I know how I'm gonna do it. You know, I'm never panic. I never panic about anything, bro. How when, it you... come, when it comes, it's going to come. It's going to come how it's going to come, which is a great way to think. Everybody out there should really think about that. The thing is, the shit that's going to come for you is going to come in a form it's supposed to come, in a recognizable form, so your ass can recognize it and make the conscious decision if this shit is for me. Tell me a project that you thought about really carefully, you analyzed it, you looked at it, you got different opinions from members of your team, maybe. Some of them said, do it. You should do it. It's great. Some of them said, I don't think it's a good idea, whatever it was. Maybe they all said, don't do it. Maybe they said, do it. And you said, I'm not doing it. But tell us one project that you turned down that looking back on it, you think to yourself, maybe I should have done that one. 
See, I, I don't count money. I count opportunities to make money. But I'm not talking about money. No, I'm, I know exactly what you're talking about. I'm, I'm, I'm leading you in now. I don't, I don't count the money. I count opportunities to make money. So when I turn something down, I'm turning it down creative. The creative's not right. If the creative's not right, I, I, did, I had a commercial. I turned down a quarter of a million dollars for a campaign. I feel so good right now because a client of mine just turned down a quarter million dollars for a campaign that probably worked one day. And I was like, well, you know, this product really isn't that great. You're probably <laughs> right about that. But my God, I think you'll be able to do this and nobody will ever know. But if you feel it's going to hurt your brand, then don't do it. I respect you one way or the other. As a manager, I'm not going to end up buying an <laughs> island like David Copperfield in the Pacific from $25,000, and you're not going to buy a house for $250,000. So, But I, I say that because, you know, you, you, you have to understand that there is a, a process to everything, man. You, you, you know, maybe, maybe when I first started, I might have jumped on it. Now, when you look back on that one opportunity, it was the $250,000 opportunity. Right, right. It was a couple of years ago. Right. You're present in the comedy world mm -hmm. and the film and television world. Yeah. And obviously, you know who did the campaign. Let's assume there wasn't any effect whatsoever. Nobody even remembers it two years later. And nobody even cares after you look back on it, if that's the case, do you still say, oh, well, maybe I could have done that one and put some college education money because nobody ever saw it? Or do you still think to yourself, well, there was a chance that somebody could have seen it and I don't want to take that chance? No, it's not even about someone seeing it. It's, it's, it's my own personal, um, um, my, my own personal, you know, just respect for another project. You know, if I feel like I'm not going to be able to give this, you know, if I if I'm if I'm in put this, if I'm in a, if I'm in a commercial campaign or if I'm in something, and consciously in my mind I know this is some BS, man. What the fuck am I doing here? Why am I even doing this stupid shit? I'm I'm I feel like I'm I'm talking to I'm I'm being fake with the producer. I'm being fake with the the, the director. I'm being fake with everyone I'm working with in the, in this it was other actors. I'm being I'm not being real with it. I'm not even there. I'm I might as well be I might as, I might as well just cut my whole insides out and stand there like a empty body. Why 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 even waste my own goddamn time? You know what I mean? You know, sometimes you know you, when 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 you do that, it's not even about. It's, I swear I swear, man. It, it's ne it's never. It's always a balance between. You know your financial, and what makes goddamn sense. You have to do that. It don't really matter if it's not comedy. Whatever it is, it gotta make sense for you, for your integrity. You know what I mean? I just don't like. I don't feel like someone should do something and not want to do it. You know what I mean? I had a guest on my on my show. Um, I had a guest on my show on my four courses show. You know, famous guy. He uh. He told me that he wanted to do my show. Oh my God. You know, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna do it. I said, cool, great. He got to the show, sat his ass down at the four courses table, and didn't do the goddamn show. He didn't do the show. So I'm thinking to myself, I don't understand. I'm gonna tell you right now. If you say you're gonna do it, don't show up and not fucking do it. Meaning, 
don't show up and 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 not do the show how the show is formatted. Don't don't just do something different. You were explained how the show goes. Don't do something totally different. Don't get there and 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 disrupt disrupt the whole fucking show. Where I gotta say cut, fucking cut. The fuck you doing? You say you would do it. Why show up and not fucking do it? That's wasting my time. That's wasting your own goddamn time. That's wasting the cameraman's time. The, the dude holding the goddamn boom. You fucking everybody up right now. If I got to cut in the middle of a show and embarrass you in front of four other guests, come on, man. That's my that's my that's my whole thing. I don't show up and not do what the fuck I say I'm gonna do. If I say I'm gonna do it, guess what? I'm gonna show up and give you two hundred percent. Cause that's your vision. That's your that's your shit. When I leave this room, you still holding it. You still you still holding this shit in your hand, ready to produce it and put it out. Why should I show up and fuck your shit up? Don't make any sense. Don't make any sense. You know, and that goes across the board with anything. When I do stand up, it's never about me. Never about me. I'm never in competition with other comedians. I'm in competition with the audience. It's about them, the people who paid the fucking money. It's about them having a good time and going home and being able to enjoy themselves. Never about who's first, who's last. It's never about who's competition. I never compete with other comedians. I compete with myself. <laughs> this is great, JB. Already I can tell you this is one of the greatest podcasts I've ever done. I can feel it. This is fantastic. So let's go back on the set with the person on the set that didn't do the show the way you wanted it to go. And obviously, you're an executive producer of the show, and you're playing both roles. You're the host of the show. You probably created the show. And now you have somebody on the show who's probably as well-known or more well-known than you. And you have to get the desired result you want from the show. And an obstacle has been thrown in your path, which this business always throws in your path, no matter what. Mm -hmm. How did you handle that to get your desired result from the show, or was it impossible to get that? There's two ways to handle it. I handle it in the moment. I, it's, there's three ways, matter of fact. I handle it in the moment. I put you to, a, to the side and handle it. Or I don't fuck with you no more. That's only three. <laughs> I'm very good at learning from my mistakes. You know what I mean? Here's what the fuck I do. This is a great thing, tool for anybody to do. I have two phones, right? Here's what I do. I don't want to tell Rick this shit. Here's what I do on my phone. So I got two telephones, right? I got an iPhone. I got a Samsung. Here's what I do. My Samsung's my main phone. My, my iPhone's my other phone. You know, just in case my Samsung run out of power. But I don't carry the iPhone everywhere I go. I carry my Samsung. So here's what I do sometimes. If I'm about to do a project, or if something's fucking with me, well, I feel like, oh man, damn, I should have I should have addressed that. You know what I do? I'll take my Samsung. No, I'll take my iPhone and I'll call my Samsung. I'll call my own self and leave myself a goddamn message. Sometimes it's a good message, sometimes it's a fucked up message, and sometimes it's don't fuck with him no more. Or advice to yourself. And something cool about Checking your message, and it's you on your own goddamn phone <clears throat> telling you something cool, telling you something to avoid, telling you something to be conscious of. It's a really easy tool to do to use. There's nothing complicated about it. 
You know, just call yourself once in a while. Sometimes you got to talk to your goddamn self. You know what I mean? And sometimes talking to yourself allows you, uh, it's a different thing when you hear yourself say it. It's a di- it's, and it's even different from talking in the mirror. It's different when you call yourself on the phone. You can save that message forever and revert back to it and remind yourself, oh, shit, that's right. I don't fuck with you no more. <laughs> it's a great tool to use. I swear, mate, as anybody can use that. Remember what it is. It just reminds you because sometimes you forget and sometimes you get caught up in the money. You know what? You forget. Oh, shit. I remember this guy from like five years ago. I don't like this fucking guy. a fucking, fucking dick. And now you got to remind yourself. And now you got the dick and you got the money. Do you, do you fuck with the dick for the money? Or, do, or what? You got to really, it's like, it's, it's a deep, this businessman is deep, brother. But, but I remain constant. I remain like, I'm just very comfortable, man, in, in my approach to things. We have something in common, my friend. I leave myself messages. You do? I leave myself texts all the time. And I update my contacts with the notes section. Mm-hmm. And I put in exactly what happened so I know mm-hmm. what went down and how it went down. And so that's the way. So... Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Let's go back to the thing you said about the um, you've fired five agents. Mm-hmm. This is always a fascinating thing uh, for a relationship between an artist and their manager when they go through situations where agencies change. For those of you out there who aren't familiar with the agency scene in Los Angeles, there's very few agencies for people of JB's caliber that are going to be able to have the access to the information and do the job. Honestly, if there's five of them that are really, really powerful, it's Mm -hmm. a miracle. And then there's another five that are great, but they don't have the financial resources that the other five have. And so when he says that he's fired five agents, when you're a manager and somebody comes into play, they fire their manager, you have a shot. There's a lot of great managers. There's the management companies that are bigger if you want that. There's the people who are more boutique. They have a few people working with them. 
There's people like me who like to just work on my own with the artist and have my group of people working for me, but they're not other managers. And every artist likes different things. If you're an agent, you have a one in four shot of getting the guy if you put a good meeting together. But if the artist fires somebody and then fires another person and then fires another person and they're available, there's not as many people out there to meet with because you don't want to go back to an agency that you fired unless there's a great agent that switched agencies and he says it's new here now, give it a shot. But even so, that happens when you walk in the building as an artist, there's a pit in your stomach because you remember walking in that building when the other people were there. And what happens when an artist fires an agent or an agency for a manager, it can create a stain on the manager and the management company because the agency perceives that the manager has a strong relationship with the artist and can easily talk the artist out of firing them. And sometimes, no matter how much the manager communicates to the agent, hey, listen, JB's unhappy. This is what he wants. He wants this, 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 and this. He wants you to work a little bit harder. Listen, I'm going to talk to him. We're going to take another three months and do it, but I'm just giving you a warning. He's not happy. I've been in situations where I've warned an agency, I'd say five times. I've set up meetings with the artist that the artist didn't want to take to come in and let's reboot, let's do this. And then when the artist fired the agency, I was mud. When I ran into the agents, they treated me like I was some kind of murderer. <laughs> when I saw the agents and it came to the clients I had with that agency, there was tension. And very hard to overcome that with your team. How do you handle that with your manager, Rick, and in terms of letting somebody go? Do you have a process of giving the agencies warnings of what you feel you want before you do something? Or are you a guy like, if they don't understand the way I work, then I'm just going to move on. And I'm going to tell Rick, give him a call. I'm out of here. And I'm going to the next meeting. Well, I'm, I got lucky. You know, you know, I, I met Rick when he worked for, for New York Entertainment. New York Entertainment <laughs> was a company that I owned that booked colleges exactly, and clubs yeah. <laughs> across the country. So, you know, our relationship goes way deeper than just a business relationship. You know, and I got lucky to have someone like Rick um, who, underst who understands, um, who's not just my manager, who's also my friend. So we, we, we have to be on the same page. You know, we'll talk about it. We'll sit there. But a lot of times we, we, we are on the same page, meaning that we'll, <clears throat> we'll notice lax, lax work. We'll, we'll notice, uh, you know, um, all these, you know, we'll just recognize things that are happening in the moment, you know, whether I bring it up or whether Rick brings it up, you know, we have to come to a conclusion, but we also have to understand that, okay, okay, we, if we, if we do this, we can expect X, Y, Z. And I, I completely understand the fact that he is the, uh, he's going to be the catalyst. He's the one that has to talk to them, you know, um, but at the same time, we both have to, have to understand that, okay, if we get rid of the agent, it's going to be a time where we got to find a new agent. You know, but at the same time, here's the great thing about having a great manager. My manager, Rick, is a hustler. He hustles. You understand? We, we went stretched the way we didn't have an agent. We, was, we just like, because we, you know, it's just a, it, it, was a, it was a good process. 
But at certain times, you do need an agent. But, you know, also, I'm not saying that, I'm not telling anybody not to get an agent. I'm not telling anybody to get an agent. But there's unique situations and unique uh, scenarios for everybody. And it's not, I, I don't, I don't it's, it's different for everybody. You really have to have a, a, a communication with your manager, a communication with yourself, and understand, you know, even if there's a, a break in 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 the, in the relationship with an agent, you know, you, you have to maintain your, your manager-client relationship so that you're both on the same page. You both understand that it's going to be, a, okay, it's going to be a little, a little lag here because, you know, we have to decide who's going to be the next agent, if there's going to be a next agent right now. And sometimes you have enough going on where you don't need one immediately. You got a chance to fill them out. To meet a few people and see if they even fit what you want to do, and um, that's the good thing about having a, a great manager is we we are on the same page. You got to be on the same page. You have to be on the same page, um, and and it's it's just it's it's going to help you in the long term to understand each other and to definitely understand what the what the long term goals are here. You know, nothing is 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 never. It's never a uh, a sprint. For me, it's always a marathon. It's always pace yourself and figure it out. Because once you once once you commit to something else, you're locked in. You're locked in again. It's like it's like getting a lease. You know what I mean? On a car, it's like, damn it, I should. I, I like the car, but I didn't get in the goddamn car and, and see if my I'm tall. I didn't get in. The, I didn't get in the car and put the seat back and see and make sure my, my goddamn knees ain't touching the steering wheel. But why the fuck did I buy this car and not sit in the goddamn seat? You know what I mean? And sometimes that that's the same thing when you're getting a um, a, 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 a publicist. They 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 have to do a fucking job. And a lot of them, shit, I mean, shit, we fired three goddamn publicists. Because these bastards don't know what the fuck they're doing. You, right, Rick? You got to let them go. We will fire. Yo, you just got to do what you got to do, man. Do never be afraid to stand up for your goddamn self, man. You just can't do it. There's certain shit you can't do, man. You know, you got to take that shit home with you. You got to take that shit home with you and live with it. And why live with something that you don't like and go home with it and bring it home to your home environment, your your, sanct- your sanctuary, and, and have that shit in your brain all day. You know, ignoring your wife and shit, your kids fucking hate you. You bringing that shit home, that's stupid. You know what I mean? I know you brought terrible shit home with you in your head. I know you have. You have to. You have to bring it home with you. Like shit. Do you live with me? I, I just know. I just know. I just know that I'm better off not dealing with that. I'm better off. I want to be my. I want to go home. I want to watch TV. I want to relax my brain outside of what the hell I do. Does it bother you that you love what you do so much? Uh-huh. But you're working in a profession in between what you love so much. There's so much horror, nastiness, and bullshit you have to do with. Doesn't it get you down? I'm Teflon, baby. <laughs> I am I am the most Teflon person you're going to ever see in your life. It doesn't matter what anybody says to me. I'm just, I'm invincible. I'm invincible. I'm undefeated. You know why? Because the only person I'm fighting is my goddamn self. I'm undefeated. You you have to have that mind. You have to have that mind that you know what you're going to do. As long as you know what you're going to put into something, you cannot, you can't lose. 
You can't lose. You know, I use I use this football at, at analogy all the time. Um, always say, as long as I can stand at the fifty yard line, right? I don't care. I don't got to score all the time. You know, I'll throw a few bombs. You know what I mean? I'll throw an interception here and there. But as long as you don't push me backwards, as long as you don't score on me, I can't lose. What about if you deflate the footballs? Yeah, it's Tom Brady, that shit. But, <laughs> but, uh, but you know what I mean? It's, it's just that. That's the only way I can see it, man. As long as I can, I can if I can stay in the middle of the 50, at the 50 yard line, until, as long as there's an opportunity to score, I'm good. You know what I mean? Well, let's talk about certain jobs that you've had where you gave everything you had. Right. And you put your heart and soul into it. Mm -hmm. And somebody said to you, listen, I don't know how to tell you this. We got the letter. They're not going to pick up your option. How do you feel about that when you give everything you have? You know you're killing it. You know you're exceeding everything. Yet somebody in a position of power or a group of people where you don't have control over says, you know what? You're not right for our place anymore. Here's what I think. As long as initially you do it for the right reason, it's going to pay off. When I went to SNL, right, I had stuff going on in L.A. You know, I auditioned for cast. You know, I didn't get cast. You know, I did make it to the NBC test. Who else tested with you that got on the uh, show? Finesse Mitchell and uh, Kenny Thompson. Those two got it. But we were the, the last three at NBC. So, which is cool, you know. What do you think you didn't do in the test that they did? I just think there was a different route for me to go. I'll tell you why. Even though I didn't get it, I went home a week later. I get a call from Lauren Michaels. Lauren Michaels rarely calls anybody up right. on the phone as an artist who <laughs> tested for a show. When you test for a show at SNL and you get off that stage at 30 Rock where the host introduced the band, where they do all the tests, and you walk off, probably one out of a hundred times does Lauren walk over to you and shake your hand and say, nice job because he keeps everything the way it is. So when he makes a call like that, that means something. Exactly. So you, you got to take that to heart. So I appreciated the call, you know. At the same time, I had to think, damn, I got a few things I'm working on here, you know, and I had opportunities in, in L.A. Um, for um, different shows and that kind of stuff. So I had to put things to the side. What does he say on the call? Oh, he just he, he calls and says, you know, Hey, JB, you know, we really loved what you did, but we're going to go in a different direction. And he said, but, you know, we think you're great. Would you consider coming in as a writer? Um, and I said, wow. I said, um, you know what? Give me a day. Let me kind of. I said, it's a great opportunity. Because here's the thing I did. I, I put this into the, I guess I put this into the universe. Um, a few years earlier, I told myself because I was doing stuff in L.A. I had moved to L.A. So I said, if I could do the same thing I'm doing here in New York, I would take it. And I told myself that because I love New York. But if I can do exactly what I'm doing here in L.A. and have an opportunity in New York, I would take it. So when he called me, you know, and, and, and he asked me if I wanted to come in as a writer, 
And you know, I thought about it for one day. I talked about it with my fiance, and I said, you know what? Let me think about this. Now, here's what I, here's here's my thinking. It's the only way I know how to do it. My thinking is the first thing I thought about was, hmm. Okay, uh, I'm not a writer. Writer. I'm a comedian. I said, evidently they like something that I do. I said, but there is opportunity to get into the system, and who knows? Maybe I'll move up. I'll put my hustle on, and maybe I'll move up to cast member. And but at the same time, I also said, you know what? This is going to look great on my resume. That's the that's the bottom line. I said, this is going to open more doors later on. This is another seed being planted. I said, I could sacrifice a few years, plant these seeds, and see what comes from it. So I said, all right. So I got him back in contact with them. I said, cool, I'll do it. And I tell you, I had to, like, immediately, I had just signed a new lease on my condo. I had to let that go. I had to pack everything up. I had to leave. They had to finish packing it. They had to transport all my stuff back to New York. And here's, here's my thing. When I got there, um, I got lucky. Opportunity came. But I had to capitalize on the opportunity. Okay? So when, when I say um, um, I got there, you know, it was definitely a fish out of water because I was sitting there like, wow, this, this, this might be the biggest thing I've done. I mean, I've been on, I was on TV shows. I was on a Fox show, sketch show with Cedric. I'd done a few things before I got there. But still, the Lyricist Lounge and all that other stuff, Chris Rock show. But this was a different, this was like, you know, someone who loved SNL. You know, who really like, was a big fan of the show growing up. So I was sitting there like, wow, I'm going to have my own office. Wow, I'm going to be in here writing jokes on <laughs> SNL. I'm like, wow. So I got in there. I started giving everybody nicknames. You know, I was being JB. And that's the only way I know how to do it. I come in, I made it comfortable for myself. I made it, I, I created this little void, this little this little area of myself where people knew that uh, I'm this kind of guy. So I came in there, you know, but at the same time, here's what I did. I got there, instead of me being locked in, because I knew I had all these different things that I do, I'm not just a writer. I came in, I did warm up for two years. I was there. I was in I was in monologues, right? I was a writer on the show. And Conan O'Brien was still at NBC downstairs. You know, they called me upstairs. They found out I was a writer upstairs. They knew I was a comedian actor, not just a writer. They called me. I did Conan O'Brien maybe 11, 12 times while I'm working at SNL behind a desk as a writer. I would get in the elevator. They would call Lauren. Lauren would say, fine. I would get in the elevator, go down to Conan's studio. Do a sketch in front of the camera, get back in the elevator, take my ass back in the elevator, back to my office, and finish typing, which was, was amazing. So that means I had four checks. I had four checks when I worked there. Four checks, which was great. Conan O'Brien show. Which, by the way, when you do Conan O'Brien and you do a sketch on the show, you get paid this minimum amount. Yeah. It changes everything. Let's say it's $976.50. Right. But the great thing about it is they also re-air Conan sometimes at 2 o'clock in the yeah, morning. Yeah, man. So then you get another check. And then sometimes they repeat the show during an off week and you get another check. And it's the gift that keeps on it's giving. gift, man. What are the other three checks? Oh, the other che the three checks are um, 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 as a writer, that's one check. 
If you're, if you're, if you're, if you're uh, I'm doing warm up, I get another check. If I'm uh, uh, in, in, a, in a monologue, whatever it is, and Conan O'Brien, that's four checks, which is great, you know. Uh, but at the same time, I'm not trying to get rich. I'm just being utilized, and I'm happy to be utilized in that in that form. But in the back of your mind, if I know you correctly, you're thinking to yourself, uh, I'm going to write these sketches for everybody, but then maybe after the 10th week or the 10th episode, <laughs> I'm going to sneak in a character that's me in this sketch with these guys. When was the first time you got on in a sketch that you wrote? as a character that you wrote it's not it's minimal stuff you know if it's not my 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 actual voice voice and it's not you know because here's what happens when you're a comedian when you write when, when you write sketches as a comedian sometimes you sometimes you do you know end up writing it in a way that only you can do it and it's not on purpose it's just how you write you know, you have a certain amount of energy you put into your sketch, into your into your dialogue, and you want it to to project a certain way. So even when you write something, you're sitting at the at the table read like, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, turn it up, more energy, more energy. You know, you're sitting there damn near coaching, but you can't coach. But in your head, you're like, damn it, he didn't do it with enough energy. That's not how I wrote it. I wrote it for energy, energy, energy. This is something that a lot of people on SNL go through, and it's a really hard thing because let's just take Tuesdays to Wednesdays. Tuesday, you are writing all day long yeah. and all night into the wee hours of the morning, and that you can turn in your sketches up till four in the morning or sometimes five in the morning, mm -hmm. and you turn them in, your name is on them. And then the next day, you find out what sketches are going to be read at the table. And there's a big read through at the table. Mm -hmm. And this table at SNL is probably the size of this hotel room. Yeah. Uh, and it holds about 50 people around the whole edges of the table. Lorne is at the head of the table and sitting next to him as the guest that week. And if there's a musical artist doing a sketch, sometimes they'll ask them to come in and do that. And then on the periphery are the younger writers. And there's also a guy who plays a piano in the corner if there's a musical sketch or something like that. And everybody's there because they want their sketch to get on. on man. They want their main sketch to get on. JB writes a sketch. And maybe he writes a sketch for one of the cast members, but that cast member has three other sketches that people have written for him, and he has his favorites. And maybe JB's sketch isn't his favorite. Maybe it's his third favorite. And maybe he wants to make sure that Lauren doesn't pick that one, but he doesn't want to hurt JB's feelings. <laughs> so he gives everything he has to the sketch that he thinks is going to be the best character to get on. And then when JB's sketch goes on, no matter how much he's prepared these people for it, they go on and they give it little or no effort, like the guy at your show on MSG. <laughs> and then you're watching as you've worked all week long for 30 hours and one guy can just take down your sketch to where it's never going to get on. And this is the hurtful thing. The way Lorne and Marcy and all the producers on the show works, it's very hard to get a sketch on again the next week if you've read it at the table and it doesn't get on. It's even hard when you've read it at the table, it gets selected. It goes to dress rehearsal and then it gets cut. It's very hard to get it back on. It's even hard if your sketch gets to the show that airs and then it gets cut for time. 
a lot of times you can't go and repitch because you got to repitch at that table with 50 people again and they have their vision of what they want. How do you do it when you perceive that they don't put the effort into your sketch that they put into another sketch that's better for them? Well, that's the balance of it. You know, here's, here's, here's how I, I I see it when 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 I'm working somewhere like that. I I have to I have to take into consideration. Okay, I'm a new writer, you know. Um, I'm coming in as a comedian who already has a voice, who always already has a character, who already has this this presence already. Um, I'm not I'm not I'm not gonna lie. I'm not the best writer when I was there because I was brand new trying it out. Uh, it was something that I wanted to add to my resume, but at the same time. Um, I was a great pitch pitch guy. They called me the king of the pitch when I was there. So thousands, amazing ideas. You know, I had this little black book, JB's black book loaded with goodies. You know, amazing ideas that I thought were really good. Good enough to, because I was a new writer, good enough to get with the more experienced veteran writers and bring it to life. Because I think there were some amazing opportunities to do some amazing sketches, you know. But again, you you don't know, you don't know how to feel. Of course, everybody wants their stuff on, you know. So as a new writer, what I would do is I would piggyback with people, you know. I would I would get with you know some of the cast members. I would get with some of the veteran writers. I would uh, take note. I would uh, I would make sure I understood the process, you know. I didn't get a lot of stuff on, but. And I was there three seasons. I mean, how many people can say that? You know, I've seen people fired around me. People didn't come back. I'm like, wow, I'm still here. It's something about me they love. But what happened after three years? When you're at SNL, it's like a kind of relationship you have that there's the greatest things in the world. It's like being with a woman who's just the smartest, most <laughs> beautiful woman in the world. She just walks into a room and it's like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm with this woman. This is so great. And then you get home and she has a temper tantrum. She slaps you across the face. She tells you things about yourself that you don't want to hear. She shines a mirror up to you and shows you what the world is like. And you just want her to be there. But there's these things behind the scenes that you see with this girl that no one sees. And it hurts you. Sometimes you want to break up with her. But you can't because when you go out in public and you're around and it's like, God, everybody thinks she's the smartest, most beautiful, wonderful person in the world. And she is. But I know the other side. And that's what SNL is like. So how did it finally end? Well, here's how I see endings. Sometimes things, whether you recognize it or not, end up being mutual sometimes, you know. And you got to look back on things on the on the on the order of things. You got to look back on it for that reason. I, I can't look back on it uh, as a bad thing because so much good came from me not being renewed in my fourth season. So I could only say, from dealing with it, from being there, uh, I could almost say, "Thank God <laughs> I didn't get resigned," because of what was waiting for me already. And and I say that because, you know, a lot of things had to happen in that, in that, in, you know, my last season, I, I knew already I wasn't going, I wasn't going back. 
I knew I knew it was going to happen. Number one is Rick can, Rick knows we had to fire the agent, and our agent handled a lot of people on the show. You know, so it was one of those things where you know what, you know what might happen. I said, yeah, I know what might happen, but you know what? It's all fucking good. We'll see what happens when the smoke clears. That's always my thing. We knew it was a possibility. So, you know, here's the thing. Why would an agent, you know, who you fire, fight for you to be on a show that they handle a lot of people on? They don't. Exactly. Now, I could have I I said, nah, I'm going to keep my agent. I'm going to sit here. You know, I'm going to sit here and just deal with this. But I'm J.B. Smooth. I'm not J.B. Smooth writer. I'm J.B. Smooth who could be in front of the camera. I'm J.B. Smooth stand-up comedian. And J.B. Smooth who loves, who loves doing projects. You know, this, I already said in my mind before I took the job, it's going to look great on my resume. Guess what? The shit is on my resume, whether I do it a year, two years, three years, or four fucking years. It's on my goddamn resume. Firing the agent, Rick and I knew what's going to happen. What's going to happen is, like you said, they're not going to fight to keep me on the goddamn show. Why? Number one, <laughs> they don't get paid. They, they, they weren't even getting paid off my SNL. Why? Because I got SNL, me and Rick, you know. When you didn't have an agent. When, we, when Rick came on board, we didn't have it. I didn't have an agent. I didn't have an agent. My original manager and then, you know, leading into Rick, I didn't have a, we just coasted. We were good. We didn't need it. Had a fucking job. It was cool. And, and Rick was a hustler, you know? And we were good. So you end up getting the, when you end up getting a damn agent who's not getting paid off of your checks anyway, my four goddamn checks, that's one strike already. Two, if I fire your ass, you ain't going to fight for me to stay on the goddamn show. You, you, ain't, getting, you ain't even getting paid off of me on the show. So... Firing them, we already knew that it wasn't going to be. Uh, it's going to be a situation. So that being said, you got to reorganize. Rick set up a new meeting with a new agent. You know, everything just had to go a certain way. And what ends up happening is you end up making chess moves. This is all chess moves, but conscious chess moves. You know, but at the same time, you got to know what the fuck you do. You gotta know what you do. You gotta know who 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 has your back. You gotta know all these things beforehand. You know what I mean? It's like okay, it's like this. It's like you go to school. You got a goddamn bully. Every day he's fucking you up. But but, but you got a big brother. Your big brother will fuck anybody up. So you know, you know what? If this shit gets out of hand, I'm making my big brother fuck him up. You know what I mean? You know you got your big brother in your back pocket. You don't want to pull it out yet. You want to see if it calms down a little bit. I got my big brother to fuck him up, so I'm good. I'm going to see how far he goes with this bullshit every day fucking with me. And one day you're going to pull that big brother out of your back pocket and your big brother's going to show up at the school and fuck that little dude up. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? That's what this shit, that's, that's what this shit is. Knowing you got somebody got your goddamn back, I'm going to put his dukes up a little bit. But knowing that you in it together. So that so that's that's what comes about. When things I always say this. When things go away, guess what? 
it allows shit to come in. If shit don't go away, shit can't get in. It can't get in. You know what I'm saying? It just can't get the fuck in. Shit got to go away. All right, let's go way, 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 way back to Mount Vernon in the projects. Tell me what it was like growing up there. Tell me what the story was with your mom and dad, family issues, what was going on, and how you got through that, and what was your first inspiration in getting into the entertainment business and comedy? Well, I've, I've always loved, you know, laughter. I've always loved comedy. I'm going to tell you something. When I was a kid, man, I, I used to almost get, like, I used to feel so bad for people. And, like, I, I used to I used to be, I'm going to say depressed, but I wanted to do something about how, uh, you know, people were treated or, or I would take news weird as a kid. Like, damn, I would think, like, that's fucked up. You know, even as a kid, I would be like, damn. Because I, I loved the, um, uh, I was a guy that went to parties and I would make sure everybody had a good time. You know, even if I had to do it myself. You know, and growing up, I always loved comedy. I always made people laugh. But I had a funny household. Everybody in my family is fucking funny. My mama's fucking funny. My mama's so damn funny that old, like right now, all her all her friends, all her friends, and my mom's in her 70s. Everybody, they just fucking, they, she's, her sarcasm is so goddamn funny that people, <laughs> like, they're nothing funnier than old people who hate each other. It's the funniest shit to see. Oh my God, my mom said some of the craziest shit and I laughed my ass off, man. And to see old people fucking argue with each other or get offended and she's just joking around with them, they, they always take it seriously. And she's so damn funny. Um, but everybody in my family's funny. When I go to North Carolina to my family reunion, when I tell you, man, you cannot get a word in edgewise. Everybody's fucking laughing, talking, they're loud. They're just like, ah, if you get in that room, it's like a fucking parade. It's like, it's, it's crazy. You got to find your spots and get in there. Because everybody, uh, I think anybody in my family could have been a comedian. I think 60% of the people in my family could have took this turn and done what I do. What I do. That's how funny they are. Naturally funny. But how do you grow up in a place where you look around and there's kids you're playing with. And then the next day you look around and where's Johnny? He got dumped. But here's the thing. Here's the thing about the projects. Projects of where, wherever the projects are you live. Mine just happened to be in Mount Vernon. Here's the thing about it. It is absolutely... Um, tell you too, I, wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade it for the world. Only because... Um, I have some amazing friends. I'm still friends with everybody who I grew up with. I mean real friends. Like these are these are my like brothers almost, brothers and sisters really, because of course with any any um, neighborhood or any area of a city that you live in, especially the projects, you're gonna see terrible stories. I lost a lot of friends growing up, but also have so many friends that it kind of outweighs the bad shit. Of course, when I mean, we get together, we will we'll bring a bad story up once in a while, but. It just outweighs the the all the all the the things you went through, you know. Which the the, the comedic part shines the brightest when it's the darkest. You understand? So when shit is bleak and look crazy, and you can actually uh, have a take on something that's funny and fun, and it takes your mind away from the crazy things that you've been through or whatever it is, um, 
that's the bright spot that I look back on all the time. Um, I definitely, definitely, definitely honed my skills in my building, honed my skills at my family reunion, you know. Um, but I was, I was, I was a kid that, you know, my family was always funny. My mom had a collection of Richard Pryor, collection of Red Fox, collection of Bill Cosby, and when, I would, every time they would go to work, I would come home from school, I would play the fucking records. I would sit there and be dying laughing. Because here's, here's what happened. They, they became party party albums. So when your mom sent you to bed, and, and they're entertaining in the living room, you're, you're in the bed, but you can still hear Richard Pryor on the, on the, on the record player. And they're laughing their asses off. And you're like, damn, that was funny. Happy shit you don't understand because, you know, you're just a fucking kid. But you can hear Richard Pryor while you're dozing off to go to sleep in the background, faintly. You know, so me, I became a big comedy fan. And not just a fan of uh, comedians. I became a fan of comedic actors also, you know. So for me, growing up, uh, became this thing where, um, you know, I was inspired by by comedic actors, by comedians. I'm gonna tell you something funny. I went to my uh, this how this how, this is how I wanted to make sure people had a good time, and that's what a comedian does. A comedian gives a piece of himself every time he gets on that stage, but people don't understand that um, that a comedian actually, no matter how he feels, what's going on in his head, how his what just happened in his family, what happened in his life. He goes on that stage and he still gives a piece of himself every time he hits that stage and grabs that microphone. You will never know the shit that goes on in his head. It's like two sides of the brain. One side of the brain is mourning something. The other side of the brain is willing to give you all he has on stage. And, you know, and I tell people all the time that this is what we do. Um, a lot of people, they, they are in it for the right reasons, like we talked about. Um, like, I went to my, I remember, I remember this, this is the moment I remember the most. Because... Uh, I went to a Halloween party at my high school. I might have been in tenth grade, maybe. And um, um, the TV show, The Gong Show, was on the original Gong Show, and it had this guy named the Unknown Comic, right? I just want to say for the audience who doesn't remember, isn't as old as I am, <laughs> the Unknown Comic was an incredible character that has never been seen before or since. It was a guy who had a bag over his head yeah. with cutouts for the eyes and the mouth. And he would do comedy with a bag over his head, and you didn't know who he was. So, I go to my Halloween party. I tell my friends, "Look, I'm going as the unknown comic." <laughs> <laughs> I went. In, I went to a, 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 a thrift store. I found a. I found the fucking jacket. I found the Zach jacket. Everything. I put some high water pants on. Had some shoes on, and. I'm going to tell you something. I got a bag, cut the eyes out, the fucking mouth. I'm going to tell you something, man. I told my buddies, look, we can't hang out tonight. Because if I walk with you guys in there, they don't know it's me. I said, so you guys go have a good time. I'm going solo tonight. When I tell you, I went in that fucking party, and I turned that party out, man. Nobody knew who the fuck I was. I was dancing on tables. I was fucking knocking drinks out of hands. I was dancing around with the, with the freaking high waters on, with the freaking bag on my head. <laughs> Nobody knew it was me, man. Nobody fucking knew. To this day, I just fucking I left there with the I came with the bag on and left with the bag on. Every time someone tried to pull the bag off, I would pull it back down, and I would just run away. I would just run through the party. And I'm tell you something, man. That was the most amazing shit ever. And after that moment, I said, Holy shit. Wow, I can do this shit. 
I just fucking made everybody laugh their asses off. And they had a good damn time. Nobody knew it was me. But, you know, not till later people found out it was me. But the amazing part was I, it, it, I did it because I wanted to make sure people had a great time. You know, and, I, and that goes back to doing shit for the right reason. You know, those fucking pants was tight as fuck on my nuts. <laughs> you feel me? I mean, I did it for the good reason of having a great time. You know how hard it is to wear a fucking bag all night? Three hours with a fucking bag on your head? Mouth part got wet and shit. I was sitting there like the bag started sagging a little bit. You know, but uh, it was great. It was freaking amazing that, you know, we we can, you know, that we can sacrifice uh, uh, ourselves and give it up, you know? And that was the same. And I'm going to tell you something. And that was around the time that I lost my dad. I, I lost my father at 15. So it's just like, you know, you, you you go through things, of course, man. You know, and that that took a turn because I, I mean, when you lose your, your dad at 14, 15 years old, and you're the oldest, you you, you got to take over. You you become that that man in the house. You know, so I had to. You know, I stayed out of trouble. I never got. I never been arrested. Never been in trouble before. What's the worst thing that happened to you in the projects? The worst story that you remember? Not only was I from Mount Vernon. I'm from New York, so I I I went shit. We were we were going out of town to parties. Come home five in the morning on the freaking train, all the way the two train all the way from freaking Times Square all the way back up to Mount Vernon. The last stop, walk. You know, uh, we would go to parties where we had to get off the train and walk through bad neighborhoods. I mean, you name it, man. We I have seen it. You know, back when we had the big radios. You know. We had guns put in our face. Give me the radio. And you just fucking give them the big box. And you just turn around and walk away. One of the interesting things for me, because obviously I'm a large white Jewish man from a white neighborhood. <laughs> One of the things that when I sit across from you and you're an African-American man and you say, hey, we used to walk through bad neighborhoods, I naturally just thought that if your skin was black and you walked through a bad neighborhood... That you got to get out of jail free pass. Your own people weren't putting a gun to your head, taking your boombox. But at the same time, I realized, you know, I've seen a lot. Whether it's walking to my own neighborhood or walking to a white neighborhood. What's the worst thing you've seen in your lifetime? Oh, shit. I had a friend of mine, you know, get uh, thrown off a roof. Ten-story building. He fell right in front of my window. Boom. Hit the ground. And I had just seen the dude about an hour earlier up the street at the store. I just seen him. Hit the, hit, the, hit the grass. Boom. But at the same time, you know, man, I've seen a little bit of everything, man. So, I mean, you, you take these things. But if you allow everything to affect you, it's got to affect you. So you're conscious of of your environment and you're conscious of things. But I, you know, I consciously, I won't use the word lucky, I consciously stayed um, out of trouble. I remained a certain kind of person. But why and how did you remain that kind of person and other people around you, possibly even some of your family members, Mm -hmm. didn't? What was it about you that something inside you said... I know what I have to do, but the other people who seemed like they had a mind mm-hmm. and a heart and a soul yeah. couldn't get out. Some of, some of my friends 
were actively, you know, certain kind of people. You know, they, you know, you know, it also goes by your household also. You know, uh, that's, that's for anybody. You know, of course, you know, a great family environment is always great. Support system is always great. You know, um, understanding, you know, uh, responsibility is always great, you know. And even before my dad died, I still had responsibility. We had, we still had a funny household. Everything was still still great. But there were some we had some amazing families in my in, in Mount Vernon. Amazing families who stuck up for each other. Who all Mount Vernon is a, I always call Mount Vernon the biggest small town in the world because we had so many amazing people come out of Mount Vernon from Denzel Washington to Art Carney to Dick Clark to you know uh, myself and. So many amazing people lived in Mount Vernon and came from Mount Vernon. And it, it was a city that had a lot of pride, a lot of heart. So even in the bad times, there was so much great things going on in the city. It was amazing. But at the same time, you, know, you, you, deal with certain, you deal with things as they arise. And sometimes things, you know, it depends how it affects you. I remember when I was a kid, you know, we, we had two parts of town. One part was, you know, the south side. One part was the was the north side, you know, um, the Fleetwood area. Now the Fleetwood area was mostly white. The south side, you know, was mostly was mostly black. Although we had people living everywhere, but you you know as a, as a kid, you know, um, you know, I remember I remember uh, losing a friend of mine. He was he was really like my like my, like my distant cousin, um, in, in a, like a gang related fight. You know, and back then they had everybody had gangs. It was so weird. It was like twenty gangs going on. It was like everywhere. It was gangs in the Bronx. The Mount Vernon bordered the Bronx, so so the Bronx guys would come over to Mount Vernon and do stuff and go back to the Bronx. You know, it was always something going on. You know, but at the same time, there's things that happen to you and you sit there like, wow, and it tests your 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 faith in humanity and your faith in things. And but it also, some things happen that change you, and. You know, like I mean, one time, you know, because Fleetwood was a white part of Mount Vernon. I mean, one time I was, I was, I had, I forgot what I came from school. And my school was on a, right, right in just about in Fleetwood, my middle school. And I remember I was walking down the street one day, and I knew, and like climates were different when we were growing up. You're talking about, you know, it's just a different climate. You know, the early, early, early '80s, late '70s. So. When you come home from school, it's like, damn. I remember I was walking home from school, and um, I was in the Fleetwood area. And I knew it was just, it was one of those areas where you either wanted to be seen or you didn't want to be seen. Because, you know, when, when you're out of your own neighborhood, it's, it's different. Um, and, and and growing up as a black as a black kid growing up, things happen to you that you got to actually look at like, damn. I look back on it now. Wondering if things would have been different had I done something different. So I'm walking down the street, and that's an old white woman. She was really old. She must have been about 80 years old. She trips and falls. And her head hit the ground, and it's blood pouring from her head. So I'm, I see her fall. I see the blood pouring out of her head. You know, and here's, here's how conscious you have to be as... Um, when different climates, I wish it wasn't like this in the world, but I just looked at her and I looked around where I was at and I said, holy shit, this fucking lady just fell. But I'm thinking like, oh shit, I'm in, uh, 
wrong neighborhood. <laughs> so I'm thinking like, shit, if I bend down to help her, it's very possible. They might think I knocked her on the ground and her fucking person sitting there. I'm like, and as a 13-year-old kid, 14-year-old kid, I said, I just stood there for a second. And then I heard someone else say, oh my God, she fell. And and I kind of like was kind of relieved because I was, it was like I was on this this balance of, oh shit, do I run over here and try to help her? But at the same time, I said, hmm, they might think I knocked her on the ground and try to get a fucking purse. <laughs> so and I imagine myself I said, I said, what if I had helped her? And what if this is this now, I don't use luck a lot, but what if I had been down and tried to help her? And someone ran over and said, oh, my God, he knocked her on the ground. He's taking her purse. And my ass would have been in a fucking detention center some fucking way. I might not be sitting here right now as J.B. Smooth, the free of mind J.B. I might be something different. And this thing happens, I'm sure it happens a lot of times in some way, some shape or form. But that's where the balance of conscious thinking and luck come in because I don't know what would have happened. But... I was I went I was lucky that someone else was standing was coming down the street and saw her fall, but I was I was nervous. And this coming from a climate of I remember standing on a corner one time. This is crazy, and we were all on our we would ride bikes every we would ride our bikes everywhere. We would go we would, we would ride up to your neighborhood. Rick. We would ride no we just rode our bikes everywhere because you know had the, tra- the trails, all those trails next to your to the to the highway. We would ride everywhere, and one time we were standing it was. This is how you have to be sometimes. Sometimes a good one is just a fucking good one. It doesn't matter if it's terrible or what. But we were all, we stopped on a corner, right? And this is the most funniest, terrible shit that ever happened. We were standing on the corner, like 10 of us on our bicycles, trying to decide which way we wanted to go. And this fucking carload of white guys rolled by, and one guy leaned out the window and said, Hey, Africa's that way. Right? Because we were all like point, pointing, like, do we want to go this way or this way? And the guy said, Africa's that way. Let me tell you something. That motherfucker turned the corner and zoomed away. We sat there for a second and we started fucking dying laughing. You know why? It was fucked up. But goddamn, we can't change shit about it. He got us. We had our hands up like the grassy knoll, pointing and shit. He fucking got us with our fucking mouth open too. Fuck! You know what I mean? But sometimes... Shit you can't change, you got to laugh at the shit. He fucking got us. To this day, we'll bring that shit up. That's the funniest shit ever. It's the most funniest, terrible shit ever, man. Africa's that way. We said, fucking got us. God damn it. Funniest shit ever. But it's not that you uh, always believe in, as long as you're conscious of shit, you can make the decisions of how to deal with it. And that's with anything. That's with business. That's with your life. So all this stuff, laughing at that shit. I wasn't a comedian then. I was a fucking kid. But laughing at that let me know that shit. There's a lot of shit I can't change. There's a lot of shit I can change. And if I can make a few people happy and enjoy what the fuck I do, it's all going to be worth it one day. Let's talk about something you couldn't change. Take me back to the day your dad passed away. And take me through that day for you. Oh yeah, man. That that's a that's a hard one, man. I mean, when you see a a, a guy works hard, 
And um, you know, my dad was like a a a, a man dad, a, like, a, like a man's man dad, meaning you know, like I didn't like fishing. My my middle brother Floyd, who was also a, com- a comic now, um, Think Floyd is his name. Um, he uh, actually my my dad loved to hunt. So his his shit that happened in my house. <laughs> we would come, we would he would go uh, hunting. We lived in Mount Vernon, which is just outside of the Bronx, which is part of New York City. My father would go upstate New York. They would go hunting. Man, on any given day, we would walk in the fucking house. My dad would have a fucking squirrel, wild squirrel, cut open on the floor with newspaper, or a wild turkey, rabbits and shit. Four rabbits on the ground. He's cutting them. He's have he had the whole living room papered, and he'll cut a fucking rabbit open. He'll he'll come back with a fucking a deer thigh. Like some weird shit. Like he was really into because from North Carolina, you hunt all the time. You hunt. You do cool stuff like that. He would come. He would come home. It'll be a bucket of fish. Like amazing fisherman, he he just loved that kind of shit. So for us, he treated us like I mean, we were really like boy boys. We fucking like, my dad was like, he was damn near uh, the Pied Piper, you know. So that meaning like Fourth of July, my dad would work downtown. He would come home, he would always make sure we had shit. Like even we didn't have much. You know, I would find out stuff about my dad, you know, thinking about it now. You know, how he wanted to make sure we always had stuff. I lived in the projects, but we always had cool stuff. I mean, really had cool stuff. Like, I was always the first, like, like he would bring home a freaking shopping bag full of fucking fireworks. Every 4th of July, man. It never failed. Every time. We would sit there like, damn, it's 4th of July today. My dad would walk in the door from work. Two shopping bags full of fireworks, all kind of shit, bottle rockets and goddamn uh, fucking like chasers and all kind of crazy stuff, man, would be in that bag. Bricks, you know, the firework, the, the firecracker brick, where you put the whole brick on the ground, you light it, and it pops for like 10 minutes. Uh, we had all the good stuff. So, um, you know, uh, you know, when, but, but he, you know he had diabetes, so uh, so he would have his bouts here and there. You know, with, you know he took insulin every every day uh, for his diabetes, but he also worked very hard. So anytime you have, you know, anytime about years ago. So now it's a little different. They have different medications and stuff like that. But back then, you know, you know to see him go to work every day, but also to see him having to take an insulin shot every day. You know, in the bathroom before he goes to work. You know, and all that kind of stuff. It was. It was you know, you didn't understand it until now. Not that I'm a father. I kind of understand the sacrifice that you have to make for your kids. You know, I remember when, I remember when, um, uh, it was this place called The Associates. I didn't know what the fuck The Associates was until uh, years later. So around holiday time, I know how hard my father worked, you know, um, but around the holiday time, I remember he had this, uh, like I went with him one time to this place and we sat behind it, you know, we sat in front of this desk and there's a guy behind the desk and my dad had to fill paperwork out and all this kind of stuff. And I never knew what the fuck it was until one day, like years later, um, I found out that the associates was actually a loan company. So every holiday, my dad would 
would if he if he had to pay all the bills and all the stuff he had to do, my dad would actually go and borrow money from the associates, which was a company, and and um make sure we had the most amazing Christmas every year. He would make sure our fucking tree was loaded with goodies. You know, we always had gifts, we always had cool stuff, but then he would pay it back over the year and then every Christmas he would do it again. Just to make sure we had, you know, a table full of food and toys and stuff that we can fucking use. So when my dad, you know, went into a diabetic coma and and he died. So was he home when it happened? No, he was actually in the hospital. He was in a diabetic coma in the hospital for shit. For about a shit, probably about a week. So you'd go to the hospital and you'd stand yeah, by his was, bed and it was difficult, man, seeing, you know, tubes and shit like that and so on. You know, and um, and even as a kid, man, you sit there like, damn, this this is, you know, you know. I guess you you know how to feel, but you don't know how to feel because you know you you see you know you you know you, you see this strong presence all the time, and you don't see you don't see a, a you know, you know you you see bouts you see different things going on in in in. In, in their lives, but at the same time, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a thing where you got to take care of yourself, you know, and I, I feel like I'm, I'm a lot like him because I'm, I make that effort to make sure that people are taken care of and happy, you know, um, it feels like I'm like I'm almost a mirror of certain things I see, characteristics, you know, uh, making sure my family's taking care of and things are good. But at the same time, you know, being vulnerable to uh to things. You know, but that's the one thing I think we you know, we, we had a lot of things in common, I feel like, but I also feel like there's a lot of things I would have done differently. You know, like you know, any t- like you see, you know, uh uh in employment. There's so many different things that you have to deal with. Um as a parent and growing up and as a, you know, I'll use it as a, as a black, as a black man, you know, you, you know, you, you have certain, certain, um, opportunities to, for certain things and you have to really capitalize on those things. Um, my father was a country guy from North Carolina. He, he, he wasn't a scholar, but he was a hardworking guy. But the call comes that day. Yeah. You're in the house. Mm-hmm. Do you go into survival mode like, okay, I'm now calm, I'm the man of the house now, or was it a situation where it was a complete oh, chaos? It, it it was chaos because, see, my mom, my mom, my mom is is not good with loss, you know, you know, um, she she just not she she doesn't like to deal with, you know, that kind of stuff. So even when, you know, the phone rang. And and my aunt my auntie was on the phone, and as soon as my mom picked the phone up, she just handed the phone to to me, and she just like walked away, and sat on the, sat sat on the floor because she knew, just by her her sister in law's voice, that something happened. So she just broke down, and uh, I'm sitting there like that that was like the changing of the guard actually. To hand the phone to the oldest son, I got on the phone with her. I found out what happened. Consoled my mom. Then I, I had an uncle that lived upstairs, 
So I had to go up and I had to, you know, go upstairs and tell him. And it's like one of those things, man. You know, you you feel you feel the weight immediately. It's like my legs couldn't like take the weight immediately. So when I was, I had to go. I, so I I walked upstairs, and like halfway up the stairs, I thought my legs was shaking because it's just like you like it's like, like a metaphor, really. You know, it's lost, but it's also like oh shit, my legs, my strength take you know this new this new burden, this new responsibility and I was like wow man you know so it became one of those things but you know again so I took about a few days off of school and just like it just changes you man it changes it changes everything you know um but at the same time you know you you learn from all the things that um you know you see you see happen you know you you, you learn how to take care of yourself differently you know, but sometimes when you, you go blind because you're so busy working, and we've lost comedians who didn't take care of themselves. You know, because they whether you're giving as a father or whether you're giving as a comedian, as an actor, you end up sacrificing so much stuff, and that goes from anybody we've lost, from musicians to actors to comedians. We've lost some great comedians who I felt like could have took care of themselves a lot better, but it just happens. You know, whether you have issues with. Uh, substance abuse, or whether you just don't take care of yourself, period. It, it, it's, but how do you, how do you, how do you like, how do you fix that in a moment? Some people are gonna want help, and some are not gonna want help. You know, you you gotta find that balance of how how do you fix that? How do you help people that need help? You know, and and a lot of times, in the end, you say to yourself, shit, I saw this coming. It's like fuck, I saw this coming, and you can't like. How much do you involve yourself? Do you change your your entire your entire personal life to make sure this person is is great? And is, is and is that person gonna gonna accept it? And you're not, you know, sacrificing your own life and time with your family and friends to help this person. You got to make sure that it's balanced. So you know, it, it's it's definitely uh, something to think about. All right, six degrees of separation. I'm going to mention a name, and you're going to tell me what comes to mind. It could be one word, one sentence, a story, oh, anything that comes to mind. Okay. Are happen. you ready? Let's go. All right, Steve Carell. Amazing guy, man. You know, I worked with Steve Carell uh, on date night. You know, here's something funny about Steve Carell. Uh, our first movie together was a Louis C.K. movie called Tomorrow Night. Um, actually, I had a bigger role in the movie than he did. He had one scene... I had like the whole fucking movie, so it's 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 it's, it's, it's cool how you see um, the progression of of someone's career. Um, Steve Carell's absolutely amazing, man. Um, I ran into him um, about a year ago, no, a few months ago, maybe six months ago, uh, in New York at the Four Seasons. Um, still, always a great guy, man. We sat there talk for like ten minutes. Um, great guy, man. He was in Tomorrow Night, this black and white movie, uh, shot uh, by Louis C.K. Man. Louis C.K., when I worked with him, when he first started from 18 to yeah. 26, he always told me, I love J.B. Smooth. I want to put him in anything. If I ever get something, I'm going to put him in anything. Adam Sandler. Oh, man. What a great guy, man. Um, I got a chance to, because of relationships, this, this is another thing about planting them seeds, man. Relationships are going to get you everything, man. Um, um, I actually um, I did the Chris Rock show. You know, being one of the only, um, maybe three 
maybe three comics to ever do stand-up on a Chris Rock show. I was one of those guys, so I got lucky to do a Chris Rock show. I had done a sketch on a Chris Rock show before that, but Chris Rock, actually, after I did um, uh, a Chris Rock show and done some stuff with him, he actually referred me to Adam Sandler. He was trying to find uh, someone to be in Mr. D's. So I was in Mr. D's because of, because of planting a seed with Chris Rock. Relationships, Relationships, everybody. baby. Tom Hanks. Oh, man, I love Tom Hanks. I ran into Tom Hanks uh, at Madison Square Garden one day. Um, candid, um, very, very, uh, very personable guy, man. Um, we're going to a Nick game, you know, because I do four courses with JB Smooth. I have access to the owner's suite and that kind of stuff. And Tom Hanks was also a guest in there. So when I, um, when I came into the room, um, I'm happy the circles that I've, you know, that I have this, this really nice balance of my career. Um, we call it. Uh, the demographics of of whatever it is, but you know, I have my, you know, I use it. I I have my white shows, I have my black shows. So I'm happy that I have this amazing balance of my audience and people who love me and follow me. So when I walked into the room, Tom Hanks looked up. He recognized me from I guess Curb and the other stuff I've done. But he also has has seen my there was there was showing my promo on the the monitor in the suite. So he turns his head, looks at the, looks at the at my promo, looks at me like. <laughs> he pointed to me like JB, you know, and we talked for a minute. Uh, really cool guy, man. Tina Fey. Tina Fey is absolutely amazing. She was a head writer when I was at SNL. Tina is so cool, man. Um, another another way. I see another thing of planting seeds, man. Um, I gave her a nickname when I was at SNL. I called her T Fey. Um, I gave her a lot of cool nicknames. I had one guy named Waterbed Kev. I don't know why I called him Waterbed Kev, but. It, was a, it just rhymed. Pretty cool. Um, Tina's great, man. You know, I got a chance to work with Tina actually uh, recently, actually on a, on, a, on a show called The Kicker, where she produced it. Um, and also, we did Date Night together, and she was the head writer when I was at SNL. Um, always loved my pitches, always helped me out, always gave me some great advice. And I'm so happy and proud for her, man, where she is in her career, man. And, um, it's a journey, man, that we are all on. It's fabulous, man, to see your friends and colleagues move and shake, you know. And I always say, man, um, you know, don't worry about doing what somebody else does. Worry about doing what the fuck you do. And then, you know, here's my thing about meeting people. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't chase people. I just like to show up in the same room as them. That's when you know you're in the same conversation, man. I use parties and, and, and events as my as my gauge. And people see you in the same circles as, as them or know people you know, that's when you feel a little more comfortable. So you don't got to actively chase people. You don't got to burn bridges. You don't got to make people uncomfortable. You just do you and show up. Dave Chappelle. Dave Chappelle is like off the hook, man. I remember Dave, when he was coming to the Boston Comedy Club, man, this young dude, man, was immediately... I mean, it's so wonderful to see someone um, at that age hop on stage and 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 and, and figure himself out that fast, man. Um, amazing career, amazing guy, man. We actually hung out at uh, uh, SNL 40. Um, great to reconnect with him, man. And um, you know, look forward to hanging out with him soon, man. We talked about taking the ladies out to lunch or to dinner, and um, great guy, man. Louis C.K. Louis C.K. put me in his, and I've done 
I must have done at least five or six of Louis' projects. And you were absolutely right. You know, uh, it's great to hear that. You know, um, he's told me, and a few people told me here and there. But uh, I ran. To, I saw Louis the other night at the uh, roast battle. So Louis is a great dude, man. Like, um, but I've done several of his projects, man. Um, um, we work together. Uh, we just keep running into each other, and I'm happy that you know I've done his, his I've done his Louis show. I did Tomorrow Night with him. I did Pootie Tang with him. I did uh, uh, his Filthy Dirty Talent show. I did um, his other uh, digital thing he did. Um, um, he actually wrote on Cedric Entertainer Presents, a sketch show I was on on Fox. He was a head writer over there. So you, you count. I'm counting six or seven things that me and Louis and I have worked on together. And uh, I thank Louis for always uh, considering me. Um, so it's, it's always fun. Larry David. Oh man, this is cool. Um, and this this goes back to, you know, the SNL thing I told you about how things have something got to move out the way to allow something to come in. So um, being a big fan of Kirby enthusiasm, you know, it's kind of like I planted I planted myself as a seed. Um, loving the show, um, big fan of the show. I remember going in. To SNL on right on 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 right on right days or pitch days, and we would talk about Kirby enthusiasm because it was on that night, and the next day we would talk about it because it was so goddamn funny, and I became a big fan of the show, and actually, man, things go into the universe, and you you, you don't know how it works, but um, you know, um, I was actually watching Kirby enthusiasm one day, my fiance who's now my wife, and I was watching watching it. And I turned her on to it, and I said, baby, I love this show so much. I said, I would love to be on that show one day. And she turned around and said, you're going to be on that show one day because you say crazy stuff all the time, and I can see you. I see you on this show. Less than a month and a half later, I was on Kirby Enthusiasm. <laughs> it's the craziest thing in the freaking world. The turnaround to me getting on Kirby was just crazy. Um, and that came also coincided with me not being re-signed for my fourth season on SNL. So when I met Larry, uh, I remember our first day together. I remember, our, or I remember the damn audition. The audition was absolutely crazy. I walked into the audition. I thought I was going to go on tape. Um, I was actually in L.A. for a friend's, um, a friend's memorial service. I lost one of my friends. And uh, I decided to go to L.A. because he, he was a producer. He produced the song, this is how we do it. This is how we do it. So I went to L.A. for one day. We had just signed with a new agent, uh, APA. We just signed with APA, and we get there. And um, um, I get there, and I'm like, okay, while I'm in town, I'm, I'm just going to go ahead and meet with my new agents on the West Coast just to let them know, hey, what I want to do next. So I go in there and meet them. And then um, uh, an agent walks in late he said hey you know i was running a little late i was on the phone uh how long you in town i said i'm in town for one day he said i have an audition here if you have time to go to it when you, i'm leaving town tomorrow he said can, can you go now i said yeah i can go now i said what's it for he said kirby enthusiasm i looked at myself i said what wow i was just talking about kirby enthusiasm my wife just said i should be on that show and now this pops up and i didn't get renewed for snl i said wow that just shows my concept of things, something got to move, something to come in. So I go to the audition, never met Larry in my life. Met Larry through the TV, you know, and loved it. Larry's audition process is very unique. Why don't you tell the audience about it? So I thought I was going to go on tape. 
I walk in the room. I had no, no idea what to expect, but I knew. But here's my process when I do auditions. You know, I'm not sure if it's everybody, but I always walk into the room as the character. Just so you know, Larry doesn't have a script. Larry doesn't have, as they say, sides or pages that you can read. Larry has suggestions. That's it. That's so it. you go in, you know the character, you have a few sentences of what the character is, I, but yeah. a hundred actors could read that few sentences about the character and they could interpret it as being a hundred different characters. Yeah. So JB has to choose almost psychically what he feels Larry's looking for because he's not going to get a chance to call Larry and say, hey, buddy, uh, yeah, I know you don't know me, but I know you on the show. So I'm right? sorry, I called, <laughs> sorry I called you buddy. But listen, I was wondering if you could just share with me what your interpretation is of the character. Hello? Hello? <laughs> so, so there is no, uh, like, like you said, there is no script. Um, it, it was just three scenarios um, that, you know, we had to pick two of the three scenarios. Um, and, you know, I picked one. Um, and I always do this. I like to walk in as the character because I, I, I feel like turning it on takes away from the process, takes away from uh, a moment there, uh, that initial meeting. Um, so, so once I walked in the room and Larry was standing in the middle of the room, they said, okay, Jay, you're going to improv directly, directly with Larry. I had no idea that was going to happen. But I already knew in my mind I'm going to walk in as a character. So when I came in the room, all the mannerisms, all the mannerisms, everything you see me do on Curb, I actually did that when I walked in the room. And Larry, I, once I saw him smirk, that's when the, the, the comedian instincts kick in. Because as a comedian, we think differently than an actor. But we have to coincide them together if you're going for an acting role. So you still have to use your comedic timing and instincts to recognize. Like when you're on stage doing stand-up, you don't, you, you know, people think com comedians just talk a lot we have to listen very intently to what people are laughing at exactly to give them more what they like about you whether it's a facial expression your 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 physicality whatever it is your stage presence something they love about you they're laughing at so once he smirked when i came in the room and i did the little leon put my hand on my chest thing and i took my head a little bit and i looked at him like this he started laughing like this he put he nodded his head a little bit and um the first thing I said, my first words out of my mouth were, this is crazy to do. I don't recommend anybody do this. But they said, okay, JB, you're going to improv with Larry. I walked up to Larry as Leon, and I said, okay, Larry, we're going to improv, baby. I might slap you in the face. And I turned around and walked away. Larry looked at everybody like, what the fuck just happened? Who the fuck is this guy saying he might slap me in the face? But he didn't say it, but his look on his face was like, holy shit. And from that moment on, I sat in the chair waiting for the scene to start, and I just did Leon the whole time. And he just nodded his head, and that shit was gold. It was gold to the point where we were having so much fun, they had to stop us. They said, okay, enough, you two. Larry, there's a lot of people out there waiting to come in. Larry, at one point, we were laughing so fucking hard, Larry turned his back, walked into the corner of the room, and turned his back, and leaned on the wall like, Okay, okay, I'm coming, I'm coming. Okay, I gotta compose myself. This guy's crazy. And he came back to me and we laughed our asses off. I leave, I get in my car, I'm driving back to the hotel to get my shit to get the fuck out of there, to leave town. I came in town for a great reason. And 
I'm 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 um I'm driving in the car, the agent calls me, say, How did it go? I say, you know what, man? It was fucking fabulous. I said, but if somebody else goes in there and and can get that role, bless them. Bless them to have an amazing season. But we had a great time. You mind just taking us through the call where you just, even if it's 15 seconds, you get the call. Oh, the call about the show? Oh, so I ended up leaving town. I had to go to Pittsburgh. I had to go an hour and a half outside of Pittsburgh Airport to go to do a comedy show in this freaking most horrible comedy club ever. So it's one of those things where sometimes, and I've never been in a hotel so fucked up. This was horrible. I, I couldn't even, like, I was so tired. I had to just lay in my clothes. I couldn't I couldn't touch anything. I kept my shoes on. I laid on the bed in my coat, in my fucking coat. It must have been freaking like 10 below zero. I saw flurries coming. I did the show. The show was freaking crazy. I got into an argument with the freaking owner about content. Uh, something crazy happened. I ended up leaving. I said, you know what, man? He said, I'm going to book somebody, a local guy from Pittsburgh. I'll pay you for the night. I said, cool. I walked out of the club. I saw little snow flurries. I said, you know what? I'm from East Coast. I know how this shit, this story goes. I'm going to fucking get stuck here in this fucked up ass hotel. And I'm not going to be able to leave tomorrow. I'm leaving tonight. So I said, I'm getting in my car. I'm driving back to Pittsburgh and stay at the airport just in case it's a fucking snowstorm. I start driving. When I tell you, it's like, it's like the, the sky opened up. I've never to this day seen that much goddamn snow come down. A half an hour into the ride, it's fucking blizzarding. Blizzard fucking coming down. People pulling over on the side of the road. I said, fuck this. I'm, I can't stop. I fucking stop. I'm stuck here. I, can't. I was already a half an hour from the hotel. I said, I'm not going to turn around. There's no sense. I'm driving, and I'm just going 15 miles an hour in the middle fucking lane. You couldn't even see the road or anything. The phone fucking rings. I answer the phone. It's my goddamn agent. I said, man, so I immediately start apologizing for what happened. I said, you know what, man? I'm sorry, man. That, I don't know what the fuck to do about that comedy club, man. I'm sorry. I, I, he paid me for one night. So he, he said, no, 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 no. Don't worry about it. He said, he, I know I know that guy, man. I, I should have told you before you went up there to do the show that the guy's a real asshole sometimes. I said, oh, okay. He said, but don't worry about that, man, because you got Kirby enthusiasm. I was like, what? I said, get the fuck out of here. He said, no. He said, he fucking loved you. Uh, you got to start work. He said, how fast are you driving? I said, about 20. He said, do 10 miles an hour. Get your ass back to the goddamn hotel in Pittsburgh. Get on the first flight out. Come back to fucking L.A. because you got to start working. I said, holy shit. I said, this is crazy. I hung the phone up, called my, called my wife. I said, baby, guess what the fuck I just got? She said, I fucking knew it. I knew it. I knew it. I told you you were good for that show. So um, I get back to L.A. My first day at work, working with Larry. So what happened was I had to go back do a few scenes, then I had to come back and get all my shit together and relocate back to back to LA. So what happened was um, we worked our first day, we worked our first day. This is a crazy story. So we worked our first day on the job and uh, Larry said, um, um, we were just standing on the side in between scenes, they were changing the cameras and he said, you know what? It feels like we've been working together for years. I said, isn't that fucking weird, Larry? It does feel like that. I feel like I already fucking know you. And we did a full season of the show. This is eerie. We did a full season of the show. We get to the rap party. Get to the rap party. And um, um, they had the gag reel. 
you know the gag reel is? The gag reel is uh, 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 a bunch of video they take out through the season and they put it all together on one video to show at a party. All the funny moments, all the funny things that happen. They show the cast, they show the crew, they show all the things that happen throughout the season. So um, they put the gag reel on, right? So my wife and I are standing, standing there having a drink, just enjoying ourselves. They put the gag reel on. The gag reel starts to play. People start laughing. Guess what the theme song was on the gag reel? This is how we do it. Holy shit. My buddy's fucking song that he produced. And if you know it's during the show, I always say, that's how I do it. I say that's how I do it in the show all the time because the only reason I came to L.A. was because he passed away. And I came to L.A. to show my respects for him. And he was one of my good friends, and he was a big fan, not just a friend, but a big fan, and always looked out for me. So I came to L.A. for the right reason, and SNL didn't get renewed. My buddy died. So think about this. Just what if SNL had renewed me? I wouldn't have been able to go out on a contract. What if my buddy didn't pass away? What if he's still alive right now? I would have never came to L.A. I would have never had opportunity to even be on Kirby Enthusiasm. So things happen. So every time, so that that day when I heard that theme song, my wife and I looked at each other, and we just shook our head and said, wow. I just pointed to the sky. I said, yo, that ain't nothing but OG right there. That's OG saying, I love you, congratulations. That's all that is, brother. Awesome. Speed round, just give me a few words. Tracy Morgan. Oh, this is funny. I'm going to say something funny. I'm ba- I bet you remember this shit. No, this is some shit on you. <laughs> remember, remember when... My first time auditioning for SNL at the at the uh, comic strip. That's right. I had seven people testing. Seven goddamn people. Honestly, too many fucking people. So you wanted to meet with me, remember? Yeah. This, is a, this is a funny story. So you wanted to meet me, meet me about the goddamn show. So I get there. Now, how did that happen? Where I was involved in that with you when I wasn't representing you? You gotta you gotta tell me that shit. So, because <laughs> I wasn't managing you, but I got you the test. It's something funny. So, you know, at that audition, there was a lot of folks on that audition. Tracy was one of them. So what happened was, um, after the audition, you called me uh, and said, hey, you know, come to the office. I want to meet with you uh, about, you know, uh, SNL. I said, oh, shit. So I'm thinking, oh, shit. Maybe it's an opportunity for me to get on the show. So I, um, I come to your office. And we started talking. He started telling me everything about SNL. He started telling me about Lauren, what he, how particular he is, what kind of things he likes, and how to approach it if you are called about it. Um, but I didn't. You know, I'm, I'm just showing up. I'm just a. I'm green. I'm green about the SNL shit. So I don't know what the fuck going on. All I know is you wanted to meet with me. So we started talking about it for a long. T- for about I was there about a fucking hour. And you probably was on the phone for 45 of that fucking time. <laughs> <laughs> JB, give me one minute, JB. JB, give me one minute. Give me one minute. I'm sitting there like, in my mind, I'm thinking, what the fuck? What the fuck am I here for? Right? <laughs> kind of like this interview. Right. So Barry's on the phone off and off, like 45 fucking minutes. I'm sitting there like, what the fuck is happening here? He's telling me about in my head, I'm saying he's telling me about SNL. But why the fuck is he telling me about it? Am I up for it? Uh I didn't know what the fuck was going on. So I was like, shit. I said, maybe, uh, maybe I'm up for it. And then somehow, as we said, okay, you know, you said I'll give you a call. You know, and I just want to tell you about it. And da, da, da. I said, okay. So I leave your office. I get in the goddamn elevator. 
to go down to the first floor. I get to the first floor, the door opens. Fucking Tracy's standing there. I'm like, oh, what's up? Right? And I said, all right, Trace. Uh, uh. She said, yo, I'm going upstairs to see Barry. I said, oh, cool, man. I said, have a good fucking meeting. I didn't even tell him I was up there to see you. I just said, you know, whatever. I just said, all right, hey, have a good day. I'll see you soon, man. So I leave. Doors closed. You know, shit. Next thing I know, Tracy was on SNL. So I'm thinking to myself, shit, I should have killed Tracy. I should have just mugged him and said, fuck it. I should have I tied him up and threw him in my goddamn trunk. <laughs> I said, because Tracy made the goddamn show. But me and Tracy have been friends forever. We've been friends forever. So for me, it was like it was like I got on the show. I fucking, that's my guy. So we, I remember Tracy first started doing stand-up. So for me, it was like, that is my guy. So I'm never disappointed when I don't get shit. I'm always happy that somebody got the shit. You know what I mean? Because I think it was a great opportunity for him. And at that time, I feel like it was, it was, sometimes I feel like I know, because I, I like the casting process. I love timing and energy. And sometimes for me, I can accept not getting something because I feel like someone else was better for it in that time. Jerry Seinfeld. Jerry's awesome, man. I never knew Jerry until I did um, the Marriage Ref. The ma- Marriage Ref was cool. Um, that's where I first met Jerry Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and then um, when um, they did the season, the the Seinfeld season of Curb, um, um, I actually met Jerry. Then I met uh, I met everybody um, who was part of that that season. Although you know, although, although they call Larry the Hog. On everybody calls Larry the Hog because Larry never shares me with anybody else. So Larry, oh, all my scenes are always with Larry. Even if someone else is in the scene, my scene is with Larry all the time. We're, we're like a, <laughs> so it's always funny that people call Larry the Hog. Larry always hogs you, JB. We want to do a scene with you, JB. You know. So that's why I met uh, Jerry initially, um, and uh, Jerry's always been cool, man. Every time I see him, and then I recently did an episode of uh, Comedians in Cars getting coffee with him and then when I tell you we hit it off like we 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 hit it off like we've been friends forever and you know I think it might be a Jerry thing because Jerry's my real name and Jerry's his real name so I think it might have been a Jerry thing so we ended up talking and kicking it man and uh, it was a great episode and we actually talked a lot off camera and on camera and I feel like we're, 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 we're good friends now awesome Chris Rock Chris Rock is like I gotta I gotta credit Chris Rock for a lot of my stuff uh, a lot of my connections. He's really good at connecting the dots, man. And um, um, from me doing sketches on the Chris Rock show to me performing on the Chris Rock show, to you know, I think I think me and Chris are a lot alike. Uh, we're about the same age. We both have this New York thing about us. We both um, you know have opportunities to do stuff. We both you know kind of stick to what we do, you know. And I think that's um, that's one thing we have in common. Chris does what he does, man, and he, he's, you know, for me, as far as stand-up, in this moment right now, what Chris does is he he captures uh, a time, he, he, he's a great voice for uh, taking the um, craziness of the world and reprocessing it and putting it back out there in a cool way, in a way that makes sense, in a comedic way, um, but at the same time, um, you know, 
making it making light of it in a way that can promote change or promote uh humor. It's a balance there. God, last one, Lauren Michaels. Lauren is like um a great guy. Let me tell you why. When I auditioned for SNL, um a lot of people get petrified talking to Lauren Michaels. They get petrified to the fucking point where they can't fucking like concentrate. They 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 almost are petrified to talk to him. I freaking love that dude. I think um I think the opportunity he gave me to uh be a part of SNL was amazing. Cause when I would pitch, and like at the pitch meetings, everyone would pitch like one or two. I would pitch like three or four. And every time I went I went last every time or next to last. And every time I stood up, because I would always stand up and do my pitches, along with the smile. And I was performing for the room, but I would perform for him because I knew my thing was to get him to, to smirk and laugh. I mean, plenty of times he's laughed and like leaned back in his chair, just like, you know, his, his little roller chair. And I would freaking like get him. Because I would, because again, the comedic instinct is, you know, comedians have bad intentions for you, whether you believe it or not. We want to make you laugh, but at the same time, we want to make you piss. We want to make you shit on yourself. I mean, my thing with Larry was, I was I, when I perform with Larry and we, we're in curb and I'm focused on his eyes, I'm trying to make him, I'm trying to make a snot bubble come out of his nose because that's the only thing, I, only way I know how. That's why I'm so aggressive when I'm talking to him on the show and, and I'm very adamant about what I'm talking about with Larry and I'm making a, a, the, the most ridiculous fucking point there is in Leon's head. And that's why I love doing that. And when I when when uh, I came to the show, I got a chance to work with him. But at the same time, at the audition, I remember talking to him about Marty Friedman. You know Marty Friedman? I took I took an improv class with Marty Friedman because Lauren asked me what I you know what's my background and more about me. I was telling him you know I took an improv class years ago. You know, because when I, when I started doing stand-up, I wanted to take an improv class so I could figure out who I wanted to be on stage. But at the same time, give me the ability to change gears in motion uh, while I'm on stage without having to rely so much on written material. I want to be able to react to shit, spill, drink, or sneeze, any fucking thing. So I told him that I took an a improv class with Marty Friedman. He said, you know Marty? I said, yeah. He, he lit up like that was one of his good, good friends. So I was like, man, yeah. We started talking about that kind of stuff. So when I got to SNL, um, I actually love, I, I, you know, aside from not getting a lot of shit on, I loved it because it was something I had to see for myself, had to learn what was out there. Sometimes knowing what's in there is great, but also learning what's out there is great because now I know how this works. I can apply this environment to anything else I want to do in my life, whether it's in front of the camera, whether it's stand up, whether it's just my life life. Life lessons, life friends, um, the process of writing, the process of creating. Um, a live show gave you that ability to pick up all these all these skills that you don't know you need right now. And all those skills are in my toolbox. Those skills come out when I need them inadvertently. It doesn't even, I don't recognize it sometimes. I said, oh shit, I must have got that from SNL, rushing around, making a quick decision on something that's live. This is live TV. You got to go, 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 go. And I, and I thank Lauren for that. And what I do is, um, I go, if I'm in New York, I go by SNL all the time. I go to his office, I'll sit there, I'll kick it with him, talk for a little bit, spend about 10 minutes when they're with him. And that's why I just want to check on you, brother. People appreciate when you fucking check on them. I go in there and check on Lauren, say hi to him, walk around, say hi to the new writers, you know, keep the morale up. And I just, and I, I leave the building. Say hi to everybody who works there. 
Awesome. Your proudest moment in show business. My proudest moment in show business. You know what it is? I think I have, I have, I, 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 aside from everything I've ever done, I make it my, my point to be a part of things that, um, like I started in the Boys and Girls Club. Um, you know, uh, in my city, two things. One is I got the key to my city, which is amazing. I have the key to my city. Um, also, I'm a big part of the Boys and Girls Club, which is my where I started at. My humor actually started in the Boys and Girls Club. That's where uh, I honed all my funny skills, you know. Um, and when I went into the um, um, uh, the Boys and Girls Club Hall of Fame, for me, that locks me in, not just as an entertainer, as a comedian, but a uh, uh, humanitarian, um, 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 someone who cares about um, um, kids growing up, whether it's just Mount Vernon, around the world this is something i'm locked in forever i'm in the national boys and girls club hall of fame you know um that was an amazing moment for me because i felt like okay this is this is makes it everything i've done worth it you know it's not you know it's not an oscar it's not an emmy but it's the most important thing uh, i think i'm ever going to have your biggest disappointment in show business and how you used it to fuel your career to the next level. Mm. I did a show, this, I did a, a BET award show one time. Now, I was working as a, at SNL. I was off almost a whole year from doing stand-up. But I still, they begged me to do it, and I, and I did it. And I didn't have a great set. It was horrible. It was terrible. It was terrible. Matter of fact, a, a comic brought it up the other day, just like here. Man, we were just talking about how that terrible night you had at the BET Awards for all those fucking people. And somehow, man, you fucking still a fucking JB. And you still are like so leaps and bounds uh, in your career and the things you fucking do. And, you know, I just turned 50 years. I just turned 50. And I feel like I'm fucking 30. Because all those seeds are still blooming, these amazing flowers, man. You know? I got a chance to smell them, you know. Um, I'm not so big that I'm stepping on toes. I'm not so big I'm burning bridges. I'm as big enough where I can just enjoy it and give you what the fuck you want from me. And um, and I took that moment. And then, you know, it probably affected me for the ride to the airport. That's about it. Because I had to leave. I was My mind was rushing because I knew I had to go to the airport right after the show. I couldn't even stay for the whole show. I had to go to the airport, straight to the airport. So it's one of those things where I'm like, holy shit, how am I, how am I gonna, gonna do this, you know? And I ended up just separating all the crazy shit and um, it, made it, it made it work, man. It made it go, yep, and you know. Last question, what advice do you have for the young artist who's growing up in the projects in some area of the world, going through some tragedy, some bad times and trying to figure out what it will take to get to the next level. You've seen so many qualities and so many comedians, so many actors, so many writers, so many people in the business. Mm-hmm. What is it that you see is the key to getting to the next level and having the kind of career that you have? You know, I, I always tell young comics when I meet them, they ask me the same question all the time, and I tell them, look, um, don't be afraid to to make your story. You know, don't pattern yourself off of other people. Don't 
don't get jealous of what someone else is doing. Don't try to emulate what they're exactly doing. If, once you create your own story, you, you have the ability to move things around and make it adjusted to your, your preference, to your movement. Um, you know, I always tell people to, to be the same person on stage as you are off stage. Not that you got to joke around all day, but have the same mind thought, the thinking, the thinking of it, the, 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 base, the base of who you are should always come out on stage. Um, that's what people, that's the gen, that makes you genuine. Um, I tell people, I tell comics all the time, don't write the jokes, but don't rely on the jokes right now. Get your stage presence together. Get your who you your character, who you are on stage together first. Jokes are gonna come in abundance. They're gonna come, come, come. But um, anybody could tell a joke. It's it's what you it's what you apply to that joke. It's the base of that joke. It's the base of who your character is and how you present that thing that's gonna make people laugh the most. Um, when you do a movie, when you get a cast in a movie, guess what? You can't bring your goddamn jokes. They want who you are, the character, who you are behind. These jokes, the jokes are just surface. The jokes are just a vehicle. Stand-up is just a vehicle to get to your next level where you want to go at. You're driving a, a, a comedian car. That's what it is. It's just a, a, a way, a mode of transportation to get where you want to go, you know. And and when you're doing this this acting, this stand-up, this, your dream is to do this. Um, cast your own shadow. Enjoy what you're doing. Um, you... you you're gonna perform in front of a lot of a lot of audiences. You know, I learn something whether I do good or whether I do bad. If I do good, how can I make it better? If I do bad, what did I do wrong here? Okay, let me let me figure out how I can make this thing work. I've seen it work. Why it's not working tonight? I did something, my pace was wrong, you know. Um and and I and listen, 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 listen on stage. Uh, understand, listen to what they are exactly laughing at. You know, you can say a bit, and sometimes the bit is getting a laugh, but sometimes your eyebrow raise or whatever you do or the way you scratch your chest or the way you scratch your cheek or where your eyes open and they're laughing at that, that means they love your mannerisms. Do more of that. Cater to whatever you do and talk about what the fuck you know about. Don't get yourself in a hole where you talking some shit and you don't know what you're talking about. Because a lot of times you'll hear a murmur in the crowd. You're like, that's not right. That's not fucking right. That's not right. You'll hear it. You're like, am I right? <laughs> you know what I mean? Get your goddamn facts straight. So only talk about what you what you know about and what you are familiar with. If you don't know politics, don't fucking talk politics. Don't do it to yourself. If you don't know sexual humor and your sex shit is wrong, don't talk sex jokes. You know, just know what you do well. And, you know, but, but above all, though, realize that you giving, you, you're, you're giving a gift to people. You know, the promoter pays us, of course. You pay to get in that club. But guess what? We are actually giving you something for free. Because we don't get residuals on how many times that joke makes you laugh while you're driving in traffic. Or how many times you tell that joke to a friend or your wife or, or you bring it up 10 years. You know how many times in the lobby someone brought up a joke for 10 years ago from me? You don't get fucking paid. Hey, imagine every time you did it, I got a dollar. This ain't fucking iTunes. You know, this is free. You know what I mean? If that was a song and you did that song on some TV show, guess what? You got to fucking pay me for using that song. 
You know, wouldn't that be amazing if we got paid every time somehow some kind of satellite system that recognizes every time someone is inspired or laughs at your joke and your, your, your app on your phone just goes bling. Oh, shit, another dollar, you know? <laughs> That'd be so fucking cool, but we don't get that. We can say profound, amazing things like a poet, but nah, the comic is different, man. Um, but the world is also changing so fast also, man. Everything's from PC now. Um, the, the comedic voice is, is in a weird place, you know, so I just, you know, I just know that comedy, we, we are the first wave of, 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 of taking the, the real news, the fucked up part of the news or the interesting part of the news and taking it in, reprocessing it and putting it back out in a, in a manageable form. So imagine if all you saw was just the, reg, the regular, the regular damn news every day. That should have drive you fucking bonkers. You couldn't live. Just hearing the regular news with no take on it, with no absolute take on it from a comedian or a late night show, and no one ever talked about the fucked up news, you'll you'll fucking shoot yourself in the fucking head, cause you couldn't deal with all that, all that crazy shit every day. You know, if someone didn't make light of the political platforms or make light of something that happened around the world, man, you 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 just can't live like that. So you know, I hope that you know. A lot of things are happening as far as, you know, uh, how how things are perceived and how things are seen nowadays. You're silencing voices, you know, and I, and I hope we can, you know, find a way to keep laughter in, in our lives and, and be able to enjoy ourselves, man, and, and allow someone else to do it. Allow someone else to take the pain and the, and the relief off you. When someone on stage talking about their life, a lot of times you look at the base of it, a lot of that shit, that shit is real. If someone said their dad was crazy or something happened, that shit is real. You know, it's just coming from a certain place. They gotta spin it to make it humorous to deal with it themselves. But like I said before, we we sacrifice a piece of ourselves. Whether you're singing, whether you're acting, whether you're a comedian, whether you're a manager, whether you're a uh, agent, you're sacrificing a piece of yourself to make something amazing. You know, um, and and you can't. Everything can't be done um, um, for for money. It just can't be. It's impossible for things just to be about the money of it. You really have to have integrity and and and, and pride in what what you do, you know. So this is what we do. I don't mean to go hard all the time, man. But you know, this is you know I'm 50. If I was 20, I wouldn't even be talking like this, you know. But I'm 50, baby, and I'm satisfied and I'm I'm cool with with the process. I'm cool with what I do. I'm cool with with, with pressing my own buttons. But any any young guy out there. You, you, you got to ride through it, baby. Ride through this shit. You know, enjoy it, but ride through it, man. Um, and I'm, and I'm, I'm happy that, you know, um, I'm seasoned and I know what I want and what I want to do and what I don't want to do. Well, JB, you cast a shadow, buddy, here, and I'm glad you chose to do this and you wanted to do this. It means so much to me. It was so incredible today. I'm happy you had me, man, and um. You know, like I said, man, whether it's on stage or whether it's off stage, whether it's in interviews, man, you've, you've heard me on Stern, you heard me on all these other shows. I give, brother. I give. You know, this is, is, is I'm not gaining anything by holding in knowledge and holding in things that I can give away to someone else. Oh, I appreciate it. The audience appreciates <laughs> it. Thank you so much. Hey, man. Good being here, bro. Amazing. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary, I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who 
has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner. And they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. All right, landing on M.G. Bradley from Arlington, Washington. Congratulations, M.G. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right. Landing on Coop0012 from September 11th, 2013, almost three years ago. Heading reads, not to be denied, exclamation point, five stars. And Coop writes, I'm new to the Barry Cats universe. I first heard about the podcast through my friends over at Infamous Hero Inc. What a great company they are. They kept telling me, quote, you got to listen to this guy, Barry Cats, unquote. After a few weeks, I finally gave it a shot. Going in blind was the best way because I instantly appreciated the humor the insight, and the experience this podcast has to offer. This guy has the momentum to become everybody's life coach. Looking forward to many podcasts to come. Wow. Thank you so much, Coop0012. I really, really appreciate it. Congratulations. All right. As always, this has been another episode of Tricky Ricky of Industry Standard with me, <laughs> Barry Katz, and Tricky Ricky Dorfman. <laughs> and if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. I'll scream your name to put you on shoulders. Walk you to fame. You'll get all the money. Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going for Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over So it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave down in the valley, a fortune. Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to BarryKatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast. Leave a comment and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.